Welcome to episode 21 of the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Leday. And I'm Cece Chapman. And joining us for the first time in about four months is Ooh, James Cohn. I'm back from the dead. <laughs> returning to the fold. <laughs> the first episode we ever did was late last January, and it was a best of 2015 roundup. And that was just me and James. It was a top five list, mm-hmm. so it was a lot shorter than what we're doing today, which is going to be the best of 2016. All three of us brought ten picks. Uh, we're going to do kind of a round table, trying to knock out as many as we can. A lot of people said this was a bad year for movies, which I don't understand that at all. Man, there's lots of good movies. I think if you like only watch sort of major studio releases, I could see how you would be um, disappointed. It seems it seems like the only movies that actually made money this year were talking animal films and superhero movies. So a lot of these like smaller indie movies just didn't get seen. So I could see how you'd be sort of down the year if you didn't watch any of the smaller stuff we're gonna be talking about today. Nothing good came out. I didn't see anything. Okay, well. <laughs> Yeah, if you only watch like Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice, I could see how you would think the year was like a total pile of shit. Yeah. But that's not the experience that the three of us had, I don't think. No. I mean, I honestly, know. I didn't go to the movies a whole lot, but every time I did, it was something really good. Yeah. I mean, you just need to know how to self select, I guess. Yeah. Honestly, at this point, I don't feel like I saw enough movies, even though I've been to the theater so many times. Like, I don't feel done, which is why James and I did sort of a catch-up list this summer of best stuff we saw since last year. I mean, there's still stuff that hasn't come to New Orleans from 2016. There's Silence, 20th Century Women, Tony Erdman. Those all are getting very high critical marks, and we haven't even had a chance to see them yet. I'm really excited about all of those. Yeah, especially 20th Century Women. That looks really good. See, I was most excited about uh, Tony Erdman. Yeah, and God knows how long we're to wait for that but i think uh the list that we have are a bunch of really great movies and i felt like i even left out some stuff that's worth talking about i couldn't quite make the cut quite be three hours right i think we have to cut it off somewhere yeah it's already gonna be way longer than we usually go so i guess without much further ado i should get right into it and all that's coming up to you right right now now. okay 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 ricky stay there we're coming over to you Come on. It's too steep. It's too steep. Ricky, you come across here. No. Just slide down the bank, cross the stream, and then climb up to us. Come on, Ricky. You're absolutely safe. All you have to do is grab some branches or some roots, okay? No. Ricky, come over here right now. I'm not going back. I'm not going to chew me. You are playing with a bag of snakes, boy. A big bag with a lot of holes in it. Got the whole country looking for you. I'll never stop running. Yeah, and I'll never stop chasing you. I'm relentless. I'm like the Terminator. I'm more like Terminator than you. I said it first, you're more like Sarah Connor. No, I'm not. Yes, and in the first movie too, before she could do chin-ups. And I guess since James is returning back to us as a sort of a guest before he starts co-hosting again, I'm going to give him the dubious honor of starting off this whole list. Well, and my number 10 is 10 Cloverfield Lane. Oh, great movie. I, first of all, I really love John Goodman in there. He's one of my yeah. favorite supporting characters of any movie. This year, I thought that it kept a level of like suspense throughout the whole thing. And then there was this beautiful payoff at the end that just totally justifies the entire movie. And it was just like a very well-crafted tight the script was really just on point and it was just like a really fun enjoyable movie yeah that that last second like genre shift is so awesome I, yeah a lot of people reacted pretty negatively to it but it Which really was silly because you know that he because of the title you know it's in the cloverfield universe even right. if it isn't a direct sequel what's wrong with adding sci-fi to like a tightly knit like That's, tension like yeah you know what i, I like, saw it as too was like do y'all remember that movie safety not Guaranteed. Guaranteed. Yeah. that you remember how that ends too. It's like, oh, this is ridiculous. Like, but yeah. it's like, dude, that's what the whole premise was. Like, 
sort of same thing with this like i like it that it kind of kept you guessing like wait is it really going to do that and then it does and it's like good, good. like it i want to see some fucking aliens man. yeah <laughs> well, and also i think i think people think that you can't have realistic acting and realistic scripts and character development in a genre film like genre films for some reason aren't real pieces of film yeah. so those those other hallmarks like shouldn't belong in there like if it's a great film it shouldn't also have aliens but it's it like, kind of gave us both it can have both like you could have a really well-made sci-fi film or a really well-made horror film like there's no reason why the cinematography and the scripting and the casting can't be excellent on a genre film that's yeah. what's such a bummer about this movie too is that John Goodman, like you said, kind of a career high performance for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then a Mary Elizabeth Winstead is so good in this movie. Neither of them are going to get like Oscar or like Golden, Golden Globes Globe. play. No, it's not possible. Which is ridiculous. Yeah, just because it's, you know, like you said, a lesser art form considered to be yeah. anyway. Which really sucks because there's a few movies on my list that are like that, that are yeah. genre films, but they're done so well that like, I don't they see were, why they... They would have been great films even if they weren't a genre piece. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this podcast is like two steps away from being a horror podcast, <laughs> like almost strictly. So yeah, we're definitely like skew more to like sci-fi and horror kind of stuff here anyway. So what was your number 10, CC? My number 10 was The Nice Guys. Oh, it's so good. It's peak Shane Black. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I would say, and the casting's really excellent. I like seeing Ryan Gosling play a not sexy idiot. Because um, yeah. <laughs> he usually plays a sexy idiot. So this was a, a good, good uh, change of pace for him. I didn't mind Russell Crowe. Turns out he has impeccable comedic timing, which who knew? Yeah, really good deadpan from him. Yeah. Where just like Ryan Gosling's like basically tripping all over himself and Russell Crowe remains stoic and like doesn't react most of the but time. But he's also kind of a blockhead. Yeah, he's also he's a meathead, yeah. yeah. It's on my list later, but it is one of the most consistently like enjoyable, fun movies I watched. Yeah, that's the thing. That's why I made year. my list. Like it's not necessarily like the best film, but I enjoyed the shit out of it. Yeah. It was great to watch. It was so fun. Yeah, I had a smile on my face like half of the movie so it's kind of like a sleazy noir comedy sort of like boogie nights but like violent and like slapstick but even on top of that there's these like weird moments where there's like mermaids there's like a talking bumblebee like the movie really goes into like some strange places i did not expect and one of my favorite things in a movie that people don't use often enough are children in danger and handling it just fine and Ryan Gosling's daughter is this whip smart, precocious kid who pretty much solves the mysteries for them. Like, yeah, they great. are useless adults. <laughs> and she's just like, uh, Dad, please, you're like the worst detective in LA. I'll handle this. And she's fine. Like, nothing bad happens to the kid. It's great. And if you, if you want to, like, sort of tag a theme onto this year as a whole, this movie made with the same people maybe 20 years ago would have been such a huge hit huge hit and it failed at the box office in the summertime like when it should be released when like Shane Black doing pretty much the same stuff but not as good in like Lethal Weapon that movie actually was a hit and this one sort of is just not struck a chord with anyone yet I think Shane Black in particular he's so good at like like you're talking about mixing slapstick with violence yeah I love that mixing of like ridiculous, like funny, but also very violent at the same time. Yeah, you feel it, bad for laughing because it gets really brutal. It, yeah. yeah, it does. People get killed. Lives are lost. It's, <laughs> but, but it's so still funny. Laughing. Yeah. <laughs> I think maybe that goes back to what we were talking about in the previous movie of the genre mixing. Like now, people don't like their like action movies to be as funny. That like they I, want it to be serious, like Dark Knight style. Like there's no good jokes. Oh uh, yeah, Dark for Knight. sure. Yeah. I think that's true. But also like just big budget action movies usually have like a few jokes kind of peppered throughout. Yeah. But it's not like the main thrust of the film. It's a comedic one, it's aspect. Pretty, 
even you can call it a comedy. Yeah, no, it's, it's yeah, it's a it's a noir comedy. Just very violent. A very violent noir comedy. <laughs> Uh, I guess speaking of sort of trashy genre films that didn't make any money this summer, um, my number 10 was Nerve, which is a very feminine action thriller about a killer smartphone app playing off of paranoia of uh, smartphone games like Pokemon Go or something like that and Surveillance State, where mm. by signing up for these games, you're pretty much giving up your like access to your bank account, which you access on the same phone, and your social media accounts where they can like look up your uh, information. But it turns that into this ridiculous girly coming-of-age story for Emma Roberts and Dave Franco uh, who sort of form this sort of ridiculous romance as they perform dares for likes across uh, New York City. And, and ever-increasing amounts of money. Yeah, they do get money. And then towards the end, a, another sort of genre twist, it devolves into this ridiculous kind of running man action thriller about like anonymous and like the dark web it's a highly ridiculous movie but i have such a soft spot for just neon lights and like ridiculously feminine trash that i was so into this movie so i i didn't see this one but it does remind me a lot of hashtag horror is there a little bit of that yeah hashtag horror and uh, unfriended that style i love this so much where they include these throwaway modes of online visuals like stuff like candy crush and uh gifs and mm-hmm. imagery. sticker emojis yeah it's imagery we encounter every day that's not being used in movies often enough and when it does the movies sort of get ignored and they're way better than people are giving credit for well, i think people are a little afraid it's going to date the movie too quickly so they don't even want to watch it in the first place they're just kind of like oh it's going to seem so awkward in like 10 years <laughs> well there so, is something uh, to that if i mean you watch movies from like the 90s that have a lot of like product placement and stuff and it always seems like very dated i think it yeah. ages culture better. moves so quickly though i think it ages better than people are giving it credit for like maybe in 2 years this won't look great but in 20 years, this is going to be such a great time capsule of what our trash looked like. I guess it makes sense. Like, I watch films from the 1960s, and I'm like, oh, man, they're picking up those rotary phones again. Lame. Yeah. <laughs> but they also aren't, like, showing you, like, the conversation on the rotary phone is, like, text on the screen in a way to, like, show us what it's well, like, you know, like, the way they would with, well, like, you know, a text the one message, I was like, thinking of was, like, you've got mail. Yeah, that, like AOL dial-up, like, chain letter kind of stuff. Like, that movie is so dated, but it's... Yeah, like you said, it's a little time capsule. Yeah. did You saw Nerve, CC. What did you I think did. of it? I, I thought it was really fun. I'm, I'm not as rapturous in my praise of it as Brandon is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I really loved how young it felt. Because a lot of horror movies tend to use people in their mid-20s as teenagers. And these people, you know, probably are in their mid-20s. But they're really well cast. They actually, you know, look pretty young. And also, it's not just a thriller. It's also this coming-of-age story where this girl is having to, like, come to terms with the fact that she wants to move away from home, like, forever. Yeah. And mm-hmm. her mom really doesn't want to let go. So, like, in her way of like separating herself from this like kind of tight-knit suffocating home environment she decides to do something really foolish like truth or dare but without the truth oh god what a great (laughs) awful tagline yeah yeah i think this i think this is a genre movie that will sort of have like a cult classic status yeah i hope 16 year olds are like watching this at slumber parties right yeah not that i think 16 year olds have slumber parties anymore but if they do you know maybe 13 year olds over the internet yeah (laughs) lamp parties but i did think like the fashion was really good 
The uh, accessories were really good. There was this uh, fuzzy blue monster fur phone case that said Teenage Dirtbag on it that oh, Brandon's yeah. been really wanting. Uh, eyeball <laughs> finger rings. Yeah, I have the same exact uh, Target brand like eyeball finger ring from a uh, plastic like injection mold ring from, yeah. from Target for Halloween from a couple years back that like some of the characters were wearing. Like, And the cinematography is pretty. It's kind yeah, of it's like really Drive, cool. just like a little more frivolous and like less heavy-handed. It's like a more it's fun. It's more frenetic too in yeah. like, the shots. It's more energetic for sure. Um, what was your number nine, James? My number. Oh, so I, I'm a little ashamed of this of this <laughs> pick because these kind of movies drive me up the wall. I really, you know. So my number nine is Gleason, a documentary. Oh, about I didn't it. even watch that. Right? Watch no, it. and I I was like very skeptical. I was like, oh, it's a movie about the Saints player that got ALS and like you know it seems so like heavy handed and so obvious but I just started watching I was like crying like a baby within the first like 20 minutes and I don't want to admit that like it got to me but it is such a like deeply like emotional like sad movie because he basically like filmed his life for the whole every stage of the ALS so from him retiring from the Saints and they show like him and his wife like doing all these fun a- outdoor activities and they like to run races and travel and then he learns he has the disease and he can't like it becomes harder and harder for him to walk he can't like go outside and do the things that he likes to do anymore and then progresses to where he's like in a chair he can't play with this kid and it just keeps going through every stage of the disease and it is like so heart wrenching and like like i said i normally try to stay away from those kind of movies because it seems a little exploitative and like i don't know just i don't want to watch something that i know is going to make me super sad but this was like so good and it's him telling his own story in a way too which is good yeah Yeah. he had like a lot to do with how the film ended up like there's one scene it was definitely one of i think the most like impactful scenes i've seen all year where his dad is like a right wing like christian like fundamentalist and he's like let me just take you to church like and they'll pray for you and that might might help like it can't hurt so he goes to church and the guy the preacher prays over him he's in front of the congregation and the preacher's like what do you want more than anything else and he's like i just want to be able to run again and he's like all right i'm praying for you god's with you like you can do it run and he takes he runs like four steps and then he falls down in front of the entire church and his father comes up he's like you know god he's he's still watching over you like i know you didn't get what you wanted and like trying to comfort him but it's so sad because you just know it's only going to get worse it's brutal dude yeah it was really sad <laughs> it sounds a lot like um sick the documentary about bob flanagan right um, just watching sl- someone slowly yeah. deteriorate to the like very end that I one's mean, about cystic fibrosis but yeah otherwise like he was documenting his life in a kind of a similar way yeah and this too like it's for a good cause like he's trying to spread awareness about als and honestly like i knew a little bit about the disease but kind of watching it in the early stages you're like oh damn like knowing within like a year you're not gonna be able to do all the stuff that makes you you Mm -hmm. and watching him like deal with that with his wife and kids and it's really tough i've heard nothing but good things i just didn't watch it because i didn't want to like put myself through the pain of watching it (laughs) no i I, plus like as as like a former new orleans new orleans saint who caught the he blocked a field goal right right after katrina like 
Yeah, he's kind of like a there's, hero. There's in already the going to be like a certain amount of like I don't know sadness porn, like just from like rewatching footage from that era. We're familiar with his story. Yeah, already. we already know his story so well. So just like man, I yeah. know about his ALS. I know. Like, but I know when he went you... to Machu Picchu with Fujita, and just like oh, so sad. Yeah, it is. I, <laughs> I just was like, I don't need that catharsis. Yeah, we're already right like now, almost so. crying thinking about it. Not <laughs> even watching. But it. that's why I had to include it on the list just because like if a movie makes you cry on such a like deep level yeah no other movie made me like feel like that this year so i had to like include it yeah for you sure. know so anyway what's your number nine cc my number nine is considerably more fun <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? uh for number nine i picked taika watiti's hunt for the wilder people hell yes i loved this film it was fun it was raucous it has this great uh kid I don't know the actor's name. Oh, Hopefully I will see him in more stuff. This was only his second feature film. So he was a relatively inexperienced actor and he's paired up with Sam Neill. <laughs> New Zealand's a secret weapon. Yeah, he's kind of playing like a gruff straight man to this like rambunctious child who yeah. he wants nothing to do with. Yeah, um, the uh, main character uh, is this boy... Um, whose name is Ricky, Ricky Baker, <laughs> and he uh, is this Maori kid who, I mean, they don't really say a lot about his, his background, but he doesn't really have parents, and he keeps bouncing around from foster home to foster home because he's a little asshole, uh, <laughs> you know, like vandalizing things, knocking over mailboxes, you Very know. Very petty, like, petty crimes. Petty crimes. Like, nothing that, like, hurts anyone. Like, he doesn't, like, beat people up. He doesn't, like, steal money from people, but, like, you know. He loves hip-hop. He loves, yeah, he loves Tupac. <laughs> and, like, 90s action movies. Yeah. Uh, so, which I feel like definitely comes from, like, Taika Waititi's own, like, life and his own, like, nostalgia because a lot of his characters are really into, like, 90s action movies, Michael Jackson. Yeah, you're uh, thinking specifically Hall. A Boy, which is, like, his best movie to date to me. Yeah. Uh, and this one's so close to that one. Like It's so close. They're spiritually similar. This one doesn't have the same emotional depth, maybe, as yeah. Boy. Because uh, it doesn't talk about, like loss of a parent and uh, abandonment and like I, things like that yeah what do but you instead, do when your like, parent doesn't love you or care about you yeah and in this one like we already know his parents don't love him or care about him so like <laughs> but he like ends up with these these two like kind of oddball um new zealanders who take him in and the, like the mother figure is like such a great human she just like loves taking people in and just taking care of them but then she passes away and him and sam neil through a series of unfortunate misunderstandings, end up on the run in the wilderness with like this manhunt type situation. And it's just, it's funny and hilarious. And the two of them have such great chemistry. Yeah. And kind of like uh, the nice guys, there's like a couple weird surreal moments within this when they're just like out in the bush for too long and they start like seeing weird things and like discovering <laughs> like new animals that everyone thought was extinct. And you know, there's a high speed chase using like an old jeep like over like the uh the grasslands and like deserty areas like yeah, it's they start to kind of live out the plot of a 90s action movie yeah like he starts to become a character in the kind of movie they try and thelma and louise it <laughs> neil neil sam neil is like no i'm not i'm not thelma and louising it with you they don't actually ref reference thelma and louise but that's kind of like ricky baker's attitude towards the end he's like they'll never take us alive he's like no please let them take us <laughs> yeah, alive I don't like, want to die, don't die. <laughs> Yeah, I think Watiti's like on a, such a hot streak right now. Like his last three movies were Boy, What We Do in the Shadows, and now Hunt for the Wilder People. 
And his next movie is like a big Marvel movie. He's doing like yeah, Thor, Thor Ragnarok. Yeah, so that Whoa. guy is just like killing it right now. Yeah. Probably he's, one he's... of the like best comedic directors I could think of that's like working. Yeah, right now, definitely. He's definitely hot stuff. Yeah. And he's probably, you know, lucky for us, he keeps bringing all of his projects back to New Zealand, which I really appreciate because... Mm-hmm. Almost every film set here. I don't want to see here anymore. Like I'd rather go watch all these weird New Zealand people. Yeah, I think even um, even Thor had a lot of Maori uh, actors and uh, crew members involved, and I think part of that's filmed in New Zealand, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, no, he, from he's, the he's just Marvel like uh, I don't, I don't, I don't want the U.S. making any more money and bringing this money home. He's there, re- he was repatriating our money back to New Zealand. There which is I'm a cool big with. like Australian New Zealand like movie scene that it seems like the last like five years or so. I've been mm-hmm. seeing a lot of movies that come out of like Australia. It's like uh, that's awesome yeah the comedy comedy scene in australia is really strong right now um i guess my number nine keeping up with the genre movies uh midnight special the new movie from jeff nichols it's a sci-fi chase movie harkening back to old 80s films from john carpenter and steven spielberg when they were like at the height of their careers but with that jeff nichols sort of muted touch to it uh, it doesn't really go for these big moments you just have Michael Shannon trying to protect his child uh, while they're being chased down from the law, and the child is slowly revealed to have these like almost godlike powers, and no one around him, even the child himself, doesn't understand what's happening to him. But Michael Shannon has this like fatherly urge to protect him, even though he doesn't quite understand the full scope of what's going to happen. Uh, and there's like this sort of air, air of dread over the whole film, and I don't think that even goes away by the end. But this is another movie that just didn't make a lot of money and really impressed me. And uh, out of the two Jeff Nichols movies that came out this year, this is definitely the one that I fell head over heels for. Did y'all see this? I, I did see it, and I it's tough because I was kind of debating to, to put it in the top ten or not. It, yeah. de- it's definitely like honorable mention, and I think it's exactly what you're saying. It never got those like big moments that I wanted out of it. I think it's. I came into it with certain expectations and it was a much more like subtle movie than I was expecting given like the premise. I was like, oh, this is going to be an awesome like chase kind of thing. And it sort of was, but not really like it's more of like a more personal sort of story. So I was a little bit, I guess, disappointed by it, but I still like it's so good. I would it'd be honorable mention for me. I think that's what keeps him from being like a super popular filmmaker is that he doesn't go for big moments. Like, you have uh, Take Shelter as Michael Shannon basically against the end of the world. Yeah, he knows the end of the world's happening and no one believes him. I mean, that's my favorite Jeff Nichols by far. But Um, it still has that, like, small, muted drama to it where it's not... But see, to me, that made more sense given the premise because it's kind of in his... Is it in his head or not? It's like a personal story. When I heard the premise for, like, Midnight Special, I was like, oh, finally he's going to go big. And he doesn't. It's not not Jeff Nichols' style to go big. So I was like, oh, man. But it was... I mean, it's still amazing. What'd you think, Cece? I really liked it. I'm also... uh, I also have it on my list. Uh, It's a little (laughs) higher up for me. Yeah. uh, Yeah, I remember when we left the theater, you were a lot higher on it than I was even. I Um, was. Yeah, I liked it a lot. I mean, I'm really into sci-fi. So yeah, what was your number eight, James? Uh, number eight for me. Oh, the nice guys. Awesome. Which we, awesome. Yeah, <laughs> which we kind of went over already. But I had a lot of fun watching this movie. Yeah. So I I don't know. We kind of covered a lot of what I, I really I do like that Ryan Gosling kind of played around with his like people's perception of the mm-hmm. kind of characters he can play. And like we said, I don't normally like Russell Crowe really, but he played the straight man perfectly. It was just super funny and cool and violent and yeah, all that stuff we kind of already Everything covered. Everything you could ever want from a summer popcorn flick. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I am I, surprised. And I think I did get popcorn for that one. Like sometimes <laughs> I try and like, I don't, I very rarely eat popcorn at the theater just because I'm there so often. So 
I am I think surprised, I did, like, um, actually buy popcorn for this, just so I can oh, show yeah. it in my face while I'm watching this. Like, yeah, I was eating Skittles, while, <laughs> uh, like, two bags of Skittles while I was watching it. But, uh, no, I am surprised that it didn't make a lot of money. In an alternate it, universe where it was, like, highly successful, would y'all go see a sequel to this? Because I kind of want to see their, like, comedic personas I'm, bounce yeah, off each I other. Would, I think of like a lethal weapon or something. Like yeah. I could see like two or three yeah. movies Very with these characters. Yeah. yeah. I'd be on board with that. What was your number eight, CC? Uh, my number eight was um, The Handmaid. It's an adaptation from a British book set in the Victorian era called Fingersmith. Uh, and it is the story of a handmaid uh, who is sent to uh, work for this kind of frail, fragile woman who is trapped in this large manor house. And the first twist you learn is that the handmaiden is in fact a con artist whose job it is to help her master, her mistress, uh, fall in love with her her friend who is also a con artist so that they can have the two of them marry and then commit this noble woman to a mental institution and then take off with all of her money. And the director, uh, Park Chan-wook, mm-hmm. does some really interesting things where instead of setting in a Victorian England with like this Victorian white cast, he transports the entire thing to Japanese-occupied Korea. And so the film becomes a lot more about like modernity and about occupation and about class issues as filtered through that lens. But then also he has all these opportunities uh, to talk about like cultural like differences. The wealthy characters in this film are all Korean, but they all want to appear to be Japanese, so they acquire all this wealth so that they can build a house that is half Japanese and then half British, hmm. so that they can show that they understand like the culture of the world and the worldliness of the world that they don't belong to quite yet. I also thought that costumes were interesting and yeah, that's the what acting I was, gonna was really ask. great. Like visually, this oh, film, yeah, it's stunning. I think, because that's probably what like number one of the year blew because... me away. Just watching the trailer was like visually, holy shit! I got to see this. We can movie call that cause... trailer of the year, right? Like that was, yeah, the, best that was trailer. the best trailer of the year. As far as the music yeah. <laughs> goes, like the way they cut it. They did this really cool effect within the trailer where they would like cut a scene and have it kind of look like a strobe light effect and then like play it backwards Mm -hmm. against Mm -hmm. itself so it would go forward and then go back but like choppy like a gif would be and I kind of hate that they didn't use the song from the trailer or that effect of like having these like images move forward choppily and then move backwards choppily and then continue at all. Uh, because I felt like the trailer was like really weird and surreal in a way. The movie is fun and beautiful, but it's not really filmed in a surreal manner. Yeah. There's no like surreal cinematography being used. It's very straightforward, beautiful and lush cinematography style. It, it reminded me, just the trailer, what's the movie? It came out uh, last year. It was in our top... Um, top yeah. I can't remember. What was it about? <laughs> uh, about... The like sort of like lesbian dominatrix. Oh, um, the oh. Duke of Burgundy. Duke of, was yeah, there a little like... bit of that going on? Yeah, I got yeah those definitely. kind of vibes. Yeah, the I would say the similarity between those two is that they both present a false idea of what's happening and then pull the rug from under you about three or four times. Yeah. Uh, okay. So yeah. and both films are very much um, lushly filmed, like you were saying earlier, mm-hmm. but also um, based on repetition. So you see the same scene play out two or three times and it means something completely different each uh-huh. time. I love that. Yeah. yeah. This film is told in three parts and three parts it just blows your mind. Like yeah. it's so fun. Th- this was like probably top one or two of movies that I missed this year that I wanted yeah. to see. So I We would... caught it at um, New Orleans Film Fest. Actually, a few episodes back, we talked about 
uh, all the movies we caught at the festival. Cool. That was ones we were very. That was one of the ones we were very high on. But seeing it um, on the big screen with like a very enthusiastic crowd that was like laughing at all the jokes and like and getting very silent during some of the more erotic moments. Although for us, the erotic moment was not what you thought it would be. Uh, there, there are a couple like sex scenes. Yeah. But the scene that everyone in the theater got dead silent for, uh, the noble woman has a sharp tooth, and her handmaiden mm-hmm. takes a thimble and uses the thimble to file down her tooth while she's in the bathtub. Oh, and weird. that's the scene that everyone just went dead silent. For. Yeah, it's more <laughs> intimate than any of the explicit sex in the film, which is Because the pretty... sex is presented in kind of... It's not presented in a leering sort of way. It's kind of presented in this, like, funny way. Yeah, I was like, laughing. Okay. It was funny. like, And it was supposed to be. Like, it wasn't It wasn't made to look realistic. I mean, how realistic does sex ever look in a film? Like, it doesn't. So it's just kind of like this, like, funny thing. Yeah, that was just outside my top ten, but probably one of the best, like, theater experiences I've had all year. Like, yeah. the audience was a lot of fun for yeah. me. Uh, and moving on, my number eight was Hunt for the Wilder People from Taika Waititi. Oh. Uh, fantastic movie. Um, if there's anything we didn't cover earlier, I think the music for that film was really good. Um, I'm usually a sucker for, like, synthy scores, so it's kind of weird for me to single this one out. But uh, there's also there's some, like, novelty songs in the movie. There's, like, Ricky's yeah. Birthday song. yeah. Oh, which is fantastic. It's an amazing song. It's on like a tiny little like melodica. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> and then there's um, just a really great score when they're in the bush. Um, it's it's like a low budget version of action movie majesty. Um, and I really like how it matches the tone of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I would recommend giving that soundtrack a listen on YouTube or something. Uh, particularly the track Ricky Runs is really great. But yeah, we've pretty much covered what I love about it earlier. Yeah. No, and if you ever need like a video to post on someone's wall because it's their birthday, you can post "Happy Birthday, Ricky Baker." Oh, that's what a great song. <laughs> it is a great song. What was your number seven, James? Uh, number seven is Kubo and the Two Strings. So which, good. Which I watched last night. I went on a binge the last couple of days trying to catch up. Man, it was so good. Like I was trying to debate, like, do I put this or like Zootopia in the top ten? It's another great one. Which I I really love Zootopia. Zootopia, by the way, has my... I laughed more than anything else this year at that... Don't say DMV. Sloth DMV. Oh, oh my god. Boo. We saw that scene like 50 times this summer. It. I loved it, <laughs> dude. It was, it was before every single movie. I, I couldn't oh. stop. I couldn't stop it's, laughing. It's a it's, smart film, and I think it's like it brilliantly handles like a lot of topics, but I don't like that scene. I don't know why. why. Tell me we, why. One, we saw it a million times. Uh, so the I joke is ruined. I've only seen the movie it's once. It's like watching but... a Tim and Eric episode like ten times in a row. Like It's got an anti-comedy element to it I that like just it. aggravates the shit out of it. Out of nowhere, dude. It's just so... Yeah. Oh, so good. But Kubo, on the other hand... <laughs> Kubo was the better film, I yeah. guess. Like There were moments in Zootopia like that that I really liked, but as a whole, I felt like Zootopia kind of fell under its own weight. Mm-hmm. Sort of, it was trying to tackle too much... Whereas Kubo was just a perfect, like, not a single shot wasted, not a single moment wasted, just everything built up. This beautiful story, and then the, like, stop-motion animation, the music. I've never seen a stop-motion movie that looks like this. That looks yeah. so gorgeous. Yeah. So when you talk about, like, a great film, it had everything. Like, music, the voice acting was really good. Especially, I love that Matthew McConaughey <laughs> character dude. Plays a dumbass <laughs> beetle. Yeah. It's fucking, Which we so couldn't funny. tell it was Matthew McConaughey at the beginning. Because really? he was doing such a good George Clooney impression. Yeah, he sounded yeah, just like George Clooney. He was just being, like, dumbass George Clooney. That was my Clooney. first guess, was George Clooney. I, could, no, I didn't know it was really uh, Charlize Theron. As, uh, yeah, and Rooney Mara as the witch sisters as well. She's really great in that. But, man, it was just such a... 
such a cool story too like like i don't know with something like zootopia it's kind of obvious what they're doing here it's like a social commentary and they're picking animals to represent and it's kind of obvious but kubo was just like a kind of a mythological kind of fairy tale and it was just it was so good i enjoyed it both both films present like a dark children's story where there's no easy answers and i I appreciate about them both yeah like one of the things they touch on in kubo is children who have to take care of their parents because their parents are not mentally able to care for themselves yeah and like that's such a hard thing because so many kids do have parents who drink too much or who have you know mental health issues and it's kind of like left to the kids to like be the grown-ups and yeah. that was just like such a dark thing and to way, like touch on in the, the way film. too it it talks about like memory and like mm-hmm. the history myth, and the myth of the self like the story you tell about yourself being more important than who you are almost you can live up to a myth that you create in your memory i think there's like something about the power of storytelling in this movie and about like how that can be above humanity. Like, how you can, like, be a better person through telling your own tale. Very strong stuff. And that's all built on, like, the tradition of, like, samurai epics and Japanese folklore. And they do a really good job of, like, respectfully using subjects from that tradition and applying it to a very useful purpose and, like, a a emotionally resonant use. Yeah, very, like, tasteful, not just, like, kind of cashing in on it. I feel like it was a hard line for them to walk because there aren't enough films that are set in foreign countries, are set uh, with people of color, and yet they mostly used white voice actors, which was kind of They they did, Like, that wasn't great. And then also, like, this isn't an actual Japanese story. It was a group of writers who, again, were mostly white who created the story. Yeah, this was directed by the son of the CEO of Nike. So this isn't like... <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, yeah, so it, that, it, it was, it was straddling aside. some like very fine lines. Yeah, but, but I, I think, think they, they did, handled it They handled very it well. pretty well. Like, and the way it deals with death. The how cyclical death is, nature of... Yeah, how like death isn't like the final step. Like It almost seemed like it needed that Japanese folklore. It needed Eastern, Eastern philosophy, really, because had it been from a Western perspective, it would have seemed weird to have your ancestors come back to speak to you. The idea that your community can dictate who you are, even... Once you're gone, they can say, no, this person is a good person, and this is how we're going to choose to remember them, and they yeah. can make that It's the kind truth. of like an anti-West, not anti-Western, but just like, like you said, an Eastern perspective that and we don't see don't a lot. You don't necessarily determine yourself. Sometimes your community does. Yeah. And like their memories of you are just as important as who you see yourself to be. Yeah, I'm getting emotional just thinking about how Kubo himself like isn't an individual figure like his parentage and his story where he comes from and the other people who've helped make him a an individual inform just as much of him as anything he's like done yeah there's not a lot of character development as far as like seeing a person and how they interact with an environment and that tells you who they are it's people telling stories about themselves and i think in a a lot of uh, like western animated films it's usually about that central character kind of finding themselves and carving their own path. And this was like, like you said, went into a lot of like deeper stuff that I really appreciated. And um, one more thing I wanted to say about it, <laughs> the the like set, I guess the set designs or the action, you know, like the scene on the boat and the scene with the skeleton with the swords yeah, in his head. Scene. Just badass. Dude. How, like, do, how, how do, do you, they pull this off? It's I don't know. Mind boggling. 
It really the, is the best stop motion. The giant Harryhausen skeleton they built for the skeleton scene is 20 feet tall. Yeah. Each each figure they made had hundreds of faces that they would interchange. It, yeah. it, you need Nike money to pull this off. Like this was never going to be a commercial venture. The fact that they got this in the movie theater for people to see is ridiculous because it is such like an impeccable work of art. I, I don't know. We'll be talking about this movie again. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> it's on some other list. Yeah. What's your number seven, Cece? My number seven is <gasps> Midnight Special. So good. <laughs> One thing we didn't really touch on uh, earlier is again, I am a sucker for Children in Danger. Yeah. I love Children in Danger films. So, which we saw on number ten, The Nice Guys. Number nine, Hunt for the Wilder People. Kubo. Nerve. Uh, nerve. <laughs> nerve. Those are teenagers. It doesn't count. They're as children much. to me. Yeah. I like. I like seeing kids in danger. <laughs> Real kids. Little Real, kids. Little kids in danger. <laughs> And Midnight Special was no exception. Um, one, I think, quibble that I had about the film is, yes, it wasn't the big spectacular, you know, spectacle uh, mm. of a Spielberg film or anything like that. So you would think that because it's a smaller film, you're going to get a lot of character development. But in this film, I felt like that was actually really lacking. Like, we know who the dad is, and we know who the dad's, like, assistant friend is, and we know mm -hmm. who the mom is. And the kid we never get to know, really. He's right. just a kid, and he's kind of a cipher because he does mysterious things, and he's never seen the outside world, and he doesn't talk a lot, and he doesn't really do a lot. He's just kind of carted from place to place as people but, are trying to protect him. Yeah, which I kind of gives him like this kind of otherworldly thing. But even well, the other characters, don't they don't know say, him. Though yeah. I think it was kind of by design that he does seem like a Christ-like figure because there's no, like you said, we don't really get deep into who he is. At, as a boy, he just kind of like yeah. represents something, yeah. you know? And he causes a change in people, and people read into that change what they want to see, which is uh, interesting. And the way that people who actually hold him to like this godlike reverence, uh, they're actually like exploiting him and stopping him from like achieving what he needs to accomplish. When there's something we don't understand, like do you exploit it? Do you try to understand it? Do you try to help it achieve yeah. its own goals? There's yeah. a lot of interesting themes going on in there. Yeah, and kind of every group of characters in the movie that are going after the boy have their own motivations for how they want to like use him for their own ends, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, and it's it makes it even more impactful that it is a young child who like can't survive on his own. He needs adults, even though he is like such a powerful being. He needs like help. Uh, and Joel Edgerton as the like assistant sheriff. I know we called out Michael Shannon earlier for being particularly good in that movie, but I thought Joel Edgerton was just as great. But again, he's a cipher. We don't even learn that he's a state trooper until like after the film, and then like the significance of several of his actions from earlier becomes you mm -hmm. know a lot more important. Like we realize like what that meant. So I, I don't know. Like yeah. I feel like all of the characters are actually kind of underdeveloped. But then there also wasn't a lot of spectacle. It's why this was only number seven for me and it wasn't in my top five, despite it being a genre film with kids in danger. I think that's a lot of Jeff Nichols' movies, though, feel kind of flat. In Take Shelter, though, like, we got a good sense of his wife. Like, she's, like, watching him, like, oh, behave yeah. more and more erratically, and she's, like, got these, like, secret fears that he's just going to yeah. murder them one day. And we see his, like, characterization mm -hmm. where we know, like, he's also questioning whether or not he's going crazy, but he, he knows, you know, he's got this certainty that the world is going to end and only he is going to be able to protect his family. You know, so, like, we do get a lot of characterization, I feel like, in some of his other you know, films. No, one thing I was going to say about, you are talking about how you like kids in danger films. I was, as you were saying, I was thinking about um, how I had watched Poltergeist again, like, last week or whatever, mm -hmm. and just thinking about, like, would I have cared about that movie as much if it was just the parents and their like teenage daughter and like no you wouldn't at all you need having, carol ann yeah. yeah having those little kids like in and not just like a perceived danger like an actual danger like she's kidnapped into the other world like yeah. 
takes it up a notch and like the stakes are so much higher when I mean I feel like that's kind of an easy like shorthand for filmmakers like just like rape yeah. is often used to like that's... explain like why a guy has to like revenge something like but kids in it danger works. it's just like oh no there's a kid it works. it's Help like him. this like kind of paternal maternal instinct of yeah. like you don't want to see kids get hurt yeah no I gotta yeah. say that kid but, but it's not just that the kid's in danger it's that the kid is in danger and taking it really well yeah they're just like handling it they're like yeah, yeah I'm fine with that I don't need to be That's rescued true. I'm good I did a um, separate list of just like campy movies from this year I really liked and very high on there was this film Clown uh, mm-hmm. where this it's basically like a version of Cronenberg's The Fly where instead of a fly this guy turns into a clown creature oh god it's so good yeah. but the reason it's so good is because he actually murders like young children in the film holy shit which adds this like whole other level of danger that like movies are usually really afraid to go for yeah. well that's true even horror movies tend to like back off of like well yeah. we don't kill kids like no, this clown eats children uh, <laughs> which oh, is pretty shit. great <laughs> I gotta I gotta check that out man. Uh, well that wasn't actually on my Real top ten. <laughs> this is not like my fun movies that didn't quite make the the cut. Uh, but my number seven was High Rise, which was equally ridiculous uh, in its cruelty. This is very Cronenbergian. We're talking about a self-contained high-rise community in the 70s. It's like luxury commodity where you never leave your building because there's every convenience that you possibly want. There's like a gym and a grocery store. You can work in the building and everything else you could possibly imagine. They're supposed to leave to go to work. They're supposed to leave. Some people are, for sure. Some people are supposed to leave to go to work. It's just eventually... That stops. But yeah, as the uh, story goes along, it becomes kind of like the exterminating angel from Louise Boutonwell, where they can't mentally make themselves leave. There's something holding them there. And the sort of raucous 70s um, free sex uh, era party that they're having gets grosser and grosser and more and more violent. As the weeks weeks months go on just any road back to normal society is completely obliterated they can't leave like they keep trying to like everyone's well and one of them will like be like i'm just gonna go to work today and then they like yeah you know never mind going back to my apartment and there's so much to love about this movie uh there's at least three covers of abba's sos and i believe one of them is done by portishead is that Mm -hmm. right but what i love about it is that it's the best cronenberg movie i've seen since cronenberg fell off it's very much like his film Shivers, uh, his first movie. Uh, it's very, it's based off a J.G. Ballard novel, who um, the same author wrote Crash, which is probably my second favorite Cronenberg after Videodrome. And this one has that body horror element to it, um, as people sort of like devolve into these like blood-soaked orgies, but also um, a sort of philosophical crisis where it's attacking what capitalism does to us and what like comfort commodities do to us. But not in any direct way where you can like put a finger on like this is why people are going crazy. This is why society is falling apart. There's no answer for that. It's just like a sense of dread because of the nasty philosophy that we've all sort of fallen under the spell of. I really love this movie. I think it's really great. Yeah, I uh, I saw this a while back, and um, first of all, I love dystopian kind of films in a self-contained universe. Yeah, and. I also love like the kind of decadence and like falling into just like the most depraved. Like it reminded me of this this older French movie. I think it's called like The Feast, where this group of men go to this estate to like basically eat themselves to death and have sex with women, and it's just fucking disgusting. And <laughs> people like 
kind of becoming the lowest common denominator. But uh, yeah, and this kind of had all that. And it had the Cronenberg, like you're saying, the body horror kind of stuff. And yeah, I really, I really enjoyed it. Did you like it, Cece? No, I, I liked it a lot. Um, I also really liked the ending uh, because there's a point where the violence just becomes too unbearable for everyone uh, and either people start killing themselves or they start killing each other and then there's only like a handful of people left and they decide to remake society in their image and all of the people are women (laughs) there's only like one man left by the end of the whole thing and so I thought that was also like a critique on like the violence of like masculinity and toxic masculinity because the only guy who really survived was the one who refused to like fight with people and kept like trying to take himself out of situations. I, I like that it had a social commentary, but it didn't like really beat you over the head with it or really offer. There's like, no easy answers. There's yeah, no, it didn't like, offer like easy solutions. It just kind of showed you the problem. There's no direct metaphor either. Like, no. Like you were saying, uh, yeah, you have this community starts with like a patriarchal figurehead that sort of slowly turns into a matriarchal society by the end where it's not as like rigid in its power structures Mm -hmm. but that's all very vague and it's hard to like oh yeah and they never show us the aftermath of that like we never see them actually cleaning anything up yeah would it be any better i mean and this is kind of like um snowpiercer in a building instead of on a train so you have the uh, rich on the upper floors and the poor on the lower floors but that conflict isn't like Snowpiercer where there's a logical progression where he gets yeah. closer and closer to the front of the train. Instead, both halves of that dichotomy fall apart because the pressure of the system is so bad for them on like an emotional, like spiritual level that it just like completely ruins what they've set up. Uh, I think this movie... I understand why this movie definitely didn't strike a chord with some people, but I think it's honestly just as good as The Exterminating Angel. I think they're like on par, and that's probably one of the better... like weird philosophical horrors I've ever seen in my life so I did want to mention though because you talked about it was the best Cronenberg movie since Cronenberg kind of fell off a little bit you should see Map of the Stars I liked that, but I didn't love it. I okay. Yeah, I loved it, yeah. but I could see how it's. It's not definitely for better everybody. to me than like uh, Cosmopolis or. Um, I, yeah, I didn't care yeah. for that one. I, I think that's one of his better ones, but I think this is like more like classic Cronenberg than even that film. You think maybe it would have done better critically and also financially if it had come out fifteen years, twenty years earlier? Yeah, probably. Which I think even with time, more people will catch up with it. I, I think it turned a lot of critics off. But there are people who this is on their wavelength, and I don't think this movie's going away anytime soon. Yeah. People keep mentioning it because uh, it really does like get. Well, there was a lot of films that kind of dealt with like the philosophical uh, horror of capitalism, like uh, They Live, and mm-hmm. other movies like that were like really popular back yeah. in the the late eighties, early nineties. So maybe, I think maybe I mean, that would kind of niche in better with them. Yeah, I wonder if people are getting burnt out a little bit though on like the anti-capitalist. Thing. like I've seen a lot of movies that have kind of approached it from that angle and this one's set in the 70s and I think that's going to help it feel timeless as the years go on this won't right. feel like oh just another Occupy Wall Street 2010s like, like yeah mm-hmm. it's, this is not going to feel like V for Vendetta in 20 years it's going to f- still feel the exact same way it does now what was your number six james oh my number six was arrival probably more than any other movie on here i definitely find a lot of faults mm-hmm. with it it is not a perfect movie by any stretch it's really kind of underdeveloped in the middle section it gets into a lot of like technical stuff and the story progresses very quickly there's more information dumps where they'll just like narrate right like, a few weeks of information like all in like one paragraph so that's like where i find 
fault and why I wouldn't put it in the top five, but it has like an emotional resonance, you know, especially the end. It really just hits you and any movie that can make you feel that strongly, I feel like deserves a place in the top 10. And I, the music was on point. Sometimes Amy Adams doesn't quite do it for me, but in this movie, like I thought she was really good. I I thought it approached the sci-fi genre in a really like intelligent way, but it was more about that like emotional center sort of like interstellar a little bit without all the spectacle and it was a little more grounded and like a human story oh yeah i loved it i know cc liked arrival even more than i did i did so it's also on my list oh good good but higher up yeah yeah, because I know you're a sci-fi yeah. fan. Yeah, so yeah, I made it on my list. I haven't actually read the short story that it's inspired by, so I'm excited to do that sometime in the next year. Would you say it was the best sci-fi movie you saw this year? I don't know. You'll have to find out in the second half <laughs> of the <laughs> podcast. Ooh. But yeah, Arrival made my top 20, but I didn't quite connect to the emotional half the way some people have. Mm-hmm. I think the movie's very smart in its sci-fi concepts. And I like the way that it's story about an alien race and humanity teaching each other their language to reach a common ground. I like how the movie mirrors that in the way it teaches you how to speak its language. And then by the end, you finally understand what you've been watching the whole time. Mm -hmm. And your brain just sort of reconfigures to sort of like wrap around what it's been doing the whole time. I found that so impressive that I didn't really care that the emotional stuff with Amy Adams and her family didn't hit me as hard that's not it's not really a concern when like the ideas are this smart to me this notion that you're talking about where the film changes as you watch it uh because you start to understand more and more and you start to reconfigure your own perspective on it it's kind of a modern way of doing the twist yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's it doesn't feel like an m night Shyamalan film where you're like oh my god i get it now Which, he was dead the whole time oh my god <laughs> but it is kind of doing that it's just it doing it from a much more philosophical and theoretical perspective it's gradual um, it's, it's not like yeah, a single gradual. scene reveal it's like yeah, a slow you, you figure it out as it's happening yeah. which i i really appreciate I, yeah, I don't, um, I guess there's a few M. Night Shyamalan twists that are real, I mean, they're effective twists, like, but they're kind of like plot devices. It's gimmicky. Yeah, it feels gimmicky after a while. It's like he set out to make a movie with a twist, like, mm-hmm. yeah. like he started the script knowing I want to work towards the twist, whereas like Arrival, the whole movie kind of... It's a series of interlocking pieces. and like, Yeah, it's more complex, I guess. Different than, pieces wouldn't have worked at all had right. they not like gone together. So it's not like you can just take the twist out and have the movie go straight without the twist. Mm-hmm. In this, the movie just wouldn't have worked had they not had the different progression that they had. But see, it doesn't even feel like a twist. It just feels like No, no, like that's what I'm saying. It's thing, not like a twist. You know? yeah, yeah. It's not surprising you. It's reworking how you're thinking. Yeah, because the way it worked in Sixth Sense, we could have gotten to the end of the movie, and it turns out that he was a psychologist, and this boy was crazy. And it would have been just and it would have been. Valid. It would also have been a perfectly valid movie, whereas this movie had the events at the end of the movie not happened. The movie doesn't make sense yeah. until then. Like, that's, the pieces don't fit together correctly. Like, you couldn't have made this movie without having it made with a structure. It's I mean, a lot more retroactively important, important. And I feel like there are movies that have done that where you could tell it was made and then they get to the end and the script writing process and they're like, oh, which way are we going to go with it? Yeah, there's either this path or this path. Which one do we want to right, go Right, and they and pick this one, the one that's the, path the most is shocking. Constant. Yeah. But yeah, this one, it's like the path The path was... starts at the beginning, and it branches out, and then it branches out again, and it branches out, and it keeps branching. And then it kind of comes back. Yeah. And the beautiful. branches all make sense. Yeah. What was your number six, Cece? My number six was 10 Cloverfield Lane. So good. So good. <laughs> so no, this one's, I think, pretty popular for us. There was um, a lot of uh, 
confined space horror movies this year. I feel like, yeah, because there was this, there was... Hush, Green Room, mm-hmm. uh, Sword of the Shallows, L, not L. What about um, Don't Speak? Emily, what's Don't Speak? I don't even know that one. Remember the, where he's blind and they're... Oh, uh, Don't Breathe. Don't Breathe, That's sorry. another one. Yeah, there's so many of so these. So many confined space ones, which, I don't know, uh, we had Disaster Horror a couple years back as we talked about in our last podcast with the end of the world and the apocalypse and, you know, asteroids. Yeah, me and James and Hannah did an episode that was just female and captivity horror. And we actually talked about 10 Cloverfield Lane on that, but that was like kind of a trend for a while as well. Yeah. Uh, And this one kind of fit both categories, but... Yeah, one thing I really liked about this is kind of like Exterminating Angel or uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. It's not just that these are people in captivity and it's thrilling and horrifying because of that, but it's also this character piece, this play, that's set in a confined space. So it's a lot more of a character drama than I feel like a lot of horror films are, which I thought was really interesting. Like, mm-hmm. But there's also this element of danger that like maybe Exterminating Angel or Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf don't have. Like, S- Something I really liked about St. Cloverfield Lane was that I've never seen a movie mirror how terrified I am of doomsday prepper people than Oof. this one. Like, I've always got this sort of weird feeling that people who are preparing for the apocalypse are looking forward to it. In oh, like a yeah. Really, They're going to have a great apocalypse. Yeah, but like, power grab kind of way. And John Goodman plays into that so well in this. And he scares the shit out but of see, me. But see, also, it's like, you want that guy on your side. No, too. I Fuck do not. No. Yes, no, you do. I'd I rather don't. die. We're going to kill ourselves. Yeah, if we're doing champagne and pills. If you want to survive. No, fuck no. Then you're like, oh, awesome doomsday prepper. Yeah, see, he's just, prepared. But yeah. no. that, look what that gets you. you yeah, know, that gets right. You. Yeah. Yeah. The other guy could have just ridden it out with them, but no, bad things happen. No, there's no way you could ever get a guy like that on your side, anyways. Because he <laughs> oh, he thinks society's part of the problem. It's part of the reason why there's an apocalypse in the first place. Well, I think one of the great things about Ten Cloverfield Lane is because you really don't know John Goodman's character's motivations. Like it kind of like flip flops. You're like, oh. He's a bad guy. Oh, wait, no, actually... Oh, no, he's a bad he's guy. Good. I never thought he wasn't a bad really? guy. He's complexly I, monstrous. Because <laughs> yeah. even if there aren't aliens outside, even if he is, like, legitimately helping her, he's going to rape her at some point. Oh, well, That's for sure. That's going to happen. So he's never a good guy. One like, the, oh, yeah. great, I didn't get eaten by aliens, but I got raped. Like, come on, like... One yeah. of the scariest reveals in any movie I saw here, so scary, was just John Goodman shaving. When he comes down clean-shaven and dressed up, I was like... Oh shit. Yeah, that means it's I time am... for us to have sex. Yeah, yeah. I was like, not into Our that relationship at all. is switched from me being your father figure to we're married now. That's true. <laughs> well, uh, my number six was not quite as scary as that, but um, also uh, sort of supernatural in a way that's hard to like put a handle on until you get to the end. The Fits, which was a debut feature from Anna Rose Homer. It's about a young girl who is boxing at her local gym with her brother um, and sort of becomes obsessed with this dance team that's uh, the more feminine side of the gym on the other side of the hall. Uh, she joins the dance team out of curiosity and once she joins the team there's these unexplained fits that happen. People have these like seizures um, and sort of transcend their human form in a way that's like never fully explained and she's just trying to navigate both her own inner personal life and how she's going to balance this boxing and dancing dichotomy she's sort of set up within herself and navigating what coming of age and coming into these like supernatural seizures means um, and the movie never really puts too fine a point on what any of that means and instead it's just this this phrase is a little overused but it's sort of this like tone poem and this like mood piece 
where uh, there's something really big happening within this character. The actor's name is uh, Royalty Hightower. She's probably one of the better like performances this year. Mm-hmm. Definitely one of the better like newcomers I've, I've seen all year. It's all about how it affects her as an observer and as a participant in these like two cultures and never really given an answer to the audience as to what exactly you've seen. It's more about an emotional catharsis than anything else. Which I really I really liked that aspect of, of the sci-fi in this and that it's never explained. Because um, it is supernatural, it is medical, it is kind of all of these things, so you can apply a lot of stuff. At one point, they're speculating that maybe it's the water in the building that's causing it, bringing to mind the fear and unease that we all felt after after the Flint water crisis that is still ongoing mm. yeah. uh, in 2017, knowing that like the water you drink might be poisoning you, and there's nothing you can do about it. So they bring in you know bottles and bottles and bottles of outside water in hopes of stopping it, and it continues, and then maybe it's a speculation on these girls' sexuality, puberty, and definitely. puberty, yeah. and again, none of it is explained because it happens to girls across like social groups within the dance troupe it happens to girls of different ages and there's never really any explanation of why it's happening to them except that it only happens to girls and that's really the only kind of factor that we have we know it only happens to girls and it only happens to the the girls in this troupe yeah I, i thought it was really transcendent stuff i did a lot cinematically with like the smallest amount of means and like money like this movie was filmed cheaply with a limited amount of resources and swung for the fences in this really ambitious way that I thought paid off incredibly well, especially by the time you get to that ending. And also all of this could be like from one person's perspective. We don't really understand that. It could be that there are no fits happening. This is just one girl's like look at a, a society she doesn't understand quite yet because she does grow up in this very masculine boxing culture. Yeah. And none of that's ever answered, and I appreciate that. Because it, it that could there's... be very much an emotional journey. And yeah, and there's multiple interpretations. I like yeah. that. And for a movie that does do that art house, uh, quiet, slow crawl, this movie's only like 80 minutes or like 78 minutes. It mm-hmm. doesn't ask a lot out of you. Mm-hmm. Uh, we saw another movie we really liked called Evolution recently that does a similar abstracted art aesthetic and that one felt more demanding like the fits actually moves and like engages with you in a different way yeah and because boxing and dance is in dance line dance color guard dance is the central like theme uh the activity that takes up most of this movie it is very frenetic you see a lot of movement you see a lot of choreography which i think also kind of helps the slower story because there's not a lot of dialogue there's very 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 little dialogue Mm -hmm. you don't see a lot of their home life you really only see them when they're at this one community center. It's about watching her observe and grow within that observation until she starts participating in a way that's 100% herself and not like mimicking someone else's like personal life. Yeah. Uh, and it's, that's a really hard thing to convey in as few like moving pieces as this movie pulls off. It's really minimalist stuff but it's done so well and i just really like afrofuturism Mm -hmm. and i love octavia butler's works and sam delaney and i love seeing these types of films being made because it is a completely uh person of color cast there are no white people in this the director's a white lady but that's about it (laughs) yeah pretty much pretty much it uh and it just it felt very very real it's not an experience i've ever had but I know that somebody out there, like, even even with the sci-fi elements, like, I feel like this was someone's life. This young person, like, straddling these two worlds and coming of age. Yeah. And I really appreciated that. Yeah, definitely. I, I love this movie. I'm, I'm actually, like, wanting to watch it again now that I'm talking about it. Well, that, that pretty much takes care of our bottom five. We're going to take a break and eat some king cake and come back with the best movies of the year. Okay. okay. 
God, I love this color on me. Red rum. What? That's what it's called. They say women are more likely to buy a lipstick if it's named after food or sex. Just think about it. Black honey, plum passion, peachy keen, pink pussy. <laughs> what about you, Sarah? What would your lipstick be called? Fuck off. Act. What about you? What about me? Are you food? Or are you sex? She's dessert. Because she's so sweet. And now that we've had our king cake and refreshments, uh, we're down to count the top five. James, you want to recap us on what you've liked so far? So at number 10, we got 10 Cloverfield Lane. That works out. Yeah. yeah 10 and 10. <laughs> uh, number nine was Gleason. Number eight was The Nice Guys. Then I had Kubo and The Two Strings. And number seven and number six was Arrival. Awesome. And then at number five, I have The Lobster. Oh, man. Which <laughs> I know is like kind of a polarizing movie this year. And I definitely, from everyone I've talked to, I seem to be one of the only people that actually really enjoyed it. Well, um, it's on a lot of critical lists. Like, a lot of people latched onto it. Well, what, what about you Not guys? Not for me, uh, no. When, no. I, when, when I left the theater, I was like, that was a James movie. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not surprised to hear that at all. Yeah, when I left the theater, I remember these these two older women being like, I don't understand how anyone could like this movie. <laughs> one of my one of my old art teachers from college, she posted on Facebook, like, how fucking bio have to, do you have to be to like like this movie? And that makes me like, like it even more. I was yeah. like, whoa, I didn't think it was like that. Like, I think any movie that damn. is that polarizing like is good. You're a big fan book. of uh, Yorgos Lathimos's Dogtooth as well, right? So I love Dogtooth yeah. and I love The Alps even more. Yeah. They're, they're all fantastic movies, but they're so weird and kind of hard, like impenetrable. impenetrable yeah. You know? <laughs> Chernobyl. <laughs> Chernobyl. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it was like quirky and funny and philosophical and hard to like really wrap your head yeah. around and the last like third of the movie is just kind of a downer and that's doesn't really it, give you much so i i get why like i think that's where the movie's been polarizing, polarizing was that the first half is this sort of surrealist comedy about this hotel where you get turned into an animal if you the first half is funny yeah people lo people love that and i think the second half when colin first character goes into the woods to live with the loners who won't participate in this like mandatory romance culture uh right. that's where people sort of fall off on it i i liked both halves kind of equally i just wasn't like over the moon on the movie the stuff in the woods is just kind of extending this giant metaphor like even further mm -hmm. i thought and then I think the ending is kind of like we were talking about with the fits. It's a little bit like open to interpretation, I guess. And I was uh, definitely glass half empty on that ending at a very negative. I was glass half empty as okay, well. Okay, good. Yeah. 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 Okay, all three of us agree on the ending. But, that, but again, that's why I liked it. I thought it fit with the rest of the movie. Like you know, still doomed to kind of be lonely, I guess. But it, it was just like some of the images in there, and some of the scenes were so like absurdly funny like i really like that kind of dark sense of humor the absurdity of it and i don't know, it just fit with my like 
sensibilities, like yeah. the kind of movies that I really enjoy. So I remember us being positive on it. Yeah, no, it was an okay movie. It just it didn't even make my top twenty. I have seen a lot of movies this <laughs> yeah. year, and I liked a lot of movies. It just it didn't really overwhelm me or anything. That one and Jeremy Solnay's Green Room were the two like, and maybe Sing Street. Those are the three that have been like praised very highly this year that I thought were all great movies. Like they're really good. I just like can't match that enthusiasm. And yeah, I think Sing Street wasn't great. It's it good. Good. Yeah, it, it, it's but I, fine. I think that's how I felt about Green Room. Mm-hmm. I was going in with such high expectations. I'm gonna love this movie, and then it kind of gave me everything I wanted. I mean, it was really violent and upsetting, <laughs> upsetting and thrilling. But I wouldn't have put that on my top twenty or whatever. So I, I get it. It's like particular. It's like a taste kind of thing. But I yeah. love those like very alienating, <laughs> like avant garde weird. If it was made for you, then you'll love it. But if it's not, then eh, it's okay that you don't like it but i do think the lobster in the end it is like a love story and Mm -hmm. it does have kind of a a human component too even though it feels very cold i mean i think it has a heart but it's kind of hard to like get there it's hard to discern that heartbeat it might (laughs) be dead but yeah (laughs) it's 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 a lot more pessimistic in my mind than some people even give it credit for yeah but anyway i i enjoy it what was your number five cc well, uh, to recap what I've done so far, uh, number 10 for me was The Nice Guys, number 9, Hunt for the Builder People, number 8, The Handmaiden, number 7, Midnight Special, number 6, 10 Cloverfield Lane, which brings me to my number 5, and for me, it was The Love Witch. Oh, it's so good. I loved it. I thought it was great. It is this kind of surreal, trashy, campy homage to these 60s exploitation films and like occult exploitation films. But it tackles the idea of modern femininity and uh, sexual trauma and murder. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a female serial killer. But she doesn't know she's a serial killer. She just loves men too much. Like, it's sort of repurposing know. these like old B-movies that are sort of inherently misogynistic in the way they make their occultist erotica. And it repurposes it for this like feminist satire on like what male expectations on women does to them. And how, like, a woman could become a crazed killer if she just tried to live up to every male ideal. Yeah, no, she's just trying to live up to male ideals. The fact that men keep dying isn't her fault. <laughs> uh, and also, the film's told from the perspective of one of those nubile young women who always lays down and lets the devil fuck her in all of these, like, <laughs> occult exploitation films. And, you know, maybe she didn't really want the devil or the occult priest to fuck her. And, you know, maybe she's now living with that trauma. And the set design for this was some of the most exquisite and beautiful stuff I've seen all year. And it's not... It doesn't have the, like, luxuriousness and richness that The Handmaiden has because they just obviously did not have that budget, but the fact that Anna Biller, the director, editor, writer, cinematographer, I think. Producer. Producer. Set uh, set designer. designer, Costume designer. Damn. uh, The work that she put into it. uh, She talked about how back in the day when these sexploitation and exploitation films were originally made, you would go to your studio's prop closet, essentially, prop warehouse, and just pick out what you needed, but all of those were disbanded at the end of the studio system. So now what she does is on the weekends, she'll go and she'll find a window, and then she'll find a mantelpiece, and then she'll find a French door, and then she'll find a nightstand, and she just kind of like assembles all of these pieces on her own. Yeah, if anyone lives up to the auteur theory where like a movie is from a single mind, which is usually bullshit because it's such a collaborative art, like she lives up to that theory. Yeah, no, she's she's like a weird, trashy version of like Wes Anderson, (laughs) like the level of meticulousness that she puts in her films. Even her first movie, Viva, she starred in herself, which I don't even think Wes Anderson's gone that far yet. No, no, he hasn't starred in anything. Jeez, Wes. 
Yeah, I did a separate list, like I said, of like my favorite campy movies of the year, and Love Witch was in my top three. It's really great biting stuff. And it, and it seems like a camp thrill, you know, yeah. but it's actually this biting, biting, biting satire. And I like that she's pretty loose in as as tightly controlled and as like personal as the art is. She'll allow like modern cars or like a smartphone to invade. Yeah, and at first you think, oh, well, poor Anna, she just didn't have the money to like keep modern like Hondas out of her shot. No. And then like later, like, character pulls out a cell phone you're like oh no this is just in some like weird alternative version of 1990s 2000s you know san francisco this it's mm. supposed to look this way <laughs> it's a movie that has like a really great sense of humor even though it is like a political piece like she does not uh take herself too seriously no. while she's making this stuff no like and again like it's hard to like write a film with like rape trauma and still have it be funny yeah and she handled that very deftly I and much like, like The Handmaiden, it was a very fun audience to watch it with. They were like raucously laughing as if it were a midnight movie. Yeah, which it's brand new, so it can't be a midnight movie yet. <laughs> but I feel like it will be very, very shortly. It felt like a restoration of like the best midnight movie that we've never seen before or something. Like it felt yeah. like a relic. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess counting down my top six, I had Nerve at the 10th slot, then Midnight Special, Hunt for the Wilder People. At seven, I had High Rise, and then The Fits. And then my number five, a movie I expect to show up on other people's lists here, The Witch, which was another great debut film for from a first-time director. This is filmed in natural light, set in Puritan New England, and you basically watch this family fall apart under their own puritanical ideals and sort of succumb to these old-fashioned fears of wanton women dancing with the devil in the moonlight, uh, sexual temptation leading to ruin, old shrews who have not married uh, becoming these like evil figures who like eat your children. Basically, <laughs> all fears that would exist in 17th century New England are very much real in this film, and they feel real. And I think the scariest thing the witch does is it transports you into that mindset where all of those threats are like viable and can tear your family apart and eat the bits. And it has one of the best endings of the year left me with such a great feeling leaving the theater that I was shocked, like literally shocked that it has been treated so negatively by wide audiences because it is such a strange film. I mean, it's so authentic. You know, the dialogue has been so well researched and that's the way they talked in that time period. That's the way they dressed. Like that's their belief system. And so it really does, like you're saying, it transports you back to that time. And I mean, it will definitely pop up later on my list, but it's... And mine to as me, well. To <laughs> yeah. me, it kind of redefined like the horror genre. What a horror movie could be i mean it's so far and beyond like every other horror movie i've seen yeah. in the it past couple of years like, yeah. it's not a documentary but it could be a document of horror that happens the only right. movie i can compare it to at all is 1922's haxan mm-hmm. uh, witchcraft through the ages which is a silent horror film quote unquote but it's really like a documentary um, that does the same sort of historical retrospective of what witchcraft is, why people believed it, how it's been used to vilify people who don't deserve it and drive them into acts they wouldn't have committed in the first place, largely women. And I don't think there's been a more meticulous and eerily beautiful look at what witchcraft is in a, in a cultural sense since the 20s. And I think this movie really is important for how it's sort of repurpose that for like a new weird beautiful art piece yeah no i would absolutely reference haxan in this uh i feel like the director was probably very much influenced by that film haxan because it's kind of sort of a documentary it does kind of do this like modern chapter where they're like nowadays we would all see all of this stuff as mental illness and maybe we should have more pity on people who behave strangely or hear voices but the witch does not do that the witch says no the devil is real yeah don't wander into the woods (laughs) yeah i feel like you know 
One, it was it was a look about female sexuality and like how scary the female body is. But then also because this is fil filmed in the or set, it's not filmed. They did not have a time machine uh, because it is set <laughs> in the 1600s uh, before there are any sort of real settlements. Most settlements only have, you know, 50 people in them, barely protected by a palisade wall. America itself, this land itself, is a monster. Yeah. It is going to consume their family, and it does. Nature is a scary beast in this movie. All natural imagery has an air of dread to it where we are dwarfed by it, and it can consume you. Even the most innocent, sweet little forest creatures belong to the forest. They do I, not belong to man. It makes them was, very threatening. When I was watching this movie, because I do think it's one of the most genuine genuinely terrifying movies that's come across in a long time but from a philosophical standpoint what i kept thinking of was it's called like cosmic pessimism basically the idea that the universe is indifferent to humans Werner Herzog. <laughs> yeah and just like it doesn't care what humans does like you're a nothing yeah and it's sort of the same idea that comes across in the witch like the humans are trying their their hardest to like influence nature to change the landscape and they're just like peons yeah. like you're nothing when it comes to like the grand scale of like the universe and there's like a certain horror i guess like like hp lovecraft tapped into that too like the cosmic horror of like your meaninglessness and the, that's a big part of the witch i also think that it's kind of remarkable in the same way that like 10 cloverfield is where it sets up this premise and you're kind of expecting an ending that you've gotten from movies in the past and then when it happens you're like oh wait this actually fulfills it's the thorough. destiny of the movie this is a thorough like a uh, vision yeah yeah i i mean i loved it and like you were saying with uh hack sand like that movie is sort of pulls back and says like oh how quaint that we used to think that but actually it's an abusive thing this movie just sticks to that there's no relief there like no. you, are, you remain in that mindset until the end credits and the only like thing that actually left me with a sour note is when the end credits come up it says like this was painstakingly researched and people used to believe this and this is from journals and I kind of wish that came at the beginning yeah because it seemed a little snarky like well if you didn't like it you just don't like history yeah. it's like well I knew what I was getting into so in my case like I loved it but or why even know. put that at all yeah it felt like yeah. weirdly glowing in like an academic kind of way yeah like we researched this a lot and it is very accurate i'd rather have just like stewed in like the weird majesty of the conclusion yeah that's like a also very the very ending was like kind of surreal mm. and off kilter so i feel like by putting that at the end it regrounds you in like the academic world and i didn't want to be there i wanted to be like with that weird splendor of the ending i, I wanted the thought of like dusty books and you know, painstakingly like researching how people tied corn into bundles in the field in order for it to dry <laughs> out properly. I wanted those thoughts at the beginning. Yeah. When people were doing stuff like that before the mayhem. Yeah, yeah. like imagine if the fits ended with like a text explaining like where they came up with the idea. Like it kind yeah. of undercuts the like weird. Um, Be like, actually, this is what the fits meant. Yeah. Like, well, I didn't want that. I didn't want that. <laughs> but I mean, that's a very small quibble. I think it is a very masterfully done film. And I, I really like that they stuck to the guns of like the natural light. And, like, the way it, it doesn't follow normal horror beats is, like, very fulfilling. Also, I, I don't know if this is still happening, but I read something a while back where he wants to, the director wants to do a uh, Nosferatu mm -hmm. yeah. remake. Oh, man. That's I'm a so project. stoked that for would that. Be, as long as he can get the funding for that, I really hope That's he gets going the funding to be and amazing. that would that happen. It would be fun. We haven't gotten a good Nosferatu movie since Werner Herzog. Yeah. So, <laughs> come on, hurry it up. 
What's your number four, James? Uh, my number four was The Innocence. It's a Polish-French film. came out this year. It's about a French woman that's working for the Red Cross, and she comes across this convent where like all the nuns are pregnant. What I thought I was getting into when I decided to watch it was like the devil's like a supernatural, like, why are all these nuns pregnant? But it's much more of like a human story because it's like post-World War II, and there's like very real explanations for what happened and they're very like scary and um but more than any other movie on my list it was it's a very like quiet like slow burner kind of movie where it moves at kind of a glacial pace and there's these small moments throughout and then towards the end it kind of all comes together in a very like very emotionally impactful way and it's also interesting because it has the same score as Arrival for its final scene. Oh weird. You, you know the last big scene in Arrival mm-hmm. there's that beautiful piece of music. That same piece of music is used in this film oh, strange. for the end and it's so funny to see the contrast of like Arrival going for the big grandiose thing and then this movie using it on a much more kind of human like subtle level and it's just a movie of like subtleties and the way you're describing it's reminded me of your pick uh, Phoenix last year had like kind of a similar yeah, trajectory uh, Phoenix and there was another movie last year called Ida Oh, I like that. That's a couple years ago. Yeah, yeah, about a nun, Polish nun. Yeah, very similar to those um, in like theme and style. But it's really it's a beautiful movie. Just cinematography, the dialogue is very restrained, but the characters are fully realized. And yeah, I would definitely recommend it if you guys haven't seen it. Okay. Um, yeah, I've not seen it. What about you, Cece? What's your number four? My number four is The Witch. Yes. <laughs> so- yes. I go from five to Love Witch to four The Witch. You know, I I heard that people really hated this film, but maybe I just live in a very peculiar bubble because I don't know anyone who hated the film. I don't know anyone. Everyone I know who who saw it was pretty much like, oh, I want to be Black Phillip for Halloween, and we didn't even talk about Black Phillip yet. No, Black Phillip's yeah character of the year. Yeah, he's a uh, he's a goat. He's a large black (laughs) goat. Steals this movie from like a few really great actors. Yeah, but yeah, I think it's more the negative reaction was coming from like general audiences people expecting a sort of standard well, horror film yeah but all my friends are huge horror buffs who go to horror movies well, all the time so they are kind of the standard horror movie audience and I they w- all loved it i will say i saw this when it first came out in the theaters and the audience i saw it with was actually laughing through half of the movie that's terrible <laughs> which is such a weird response to a lot of the stuff that happens in there like the scene with um the witch and the the Caleb. baby. Oh, no, the baby. Okay. And, like, people were laughing at that. Like, oh, look at that naked old lady. Ha, ha, ha. Like, oh, I was no, like, that's I... That's a disgusting scene. It's so chilling. I kind of see what you're saying, how general audiences did not get it, you know? Yeah, see, see you, we watched it at home when you yeah, saw I, it. Yeah, I saw it later. I, I missed it in the but theater. But when I saw it in the theater, class, people, like, but... almost practically yelling at the screen when it was over like what was that i hated that like you could just feel the negative reaction in the room and it really like surprised me because it it is like a well-made movie yeah the only theater going experience i had like that was seeing the lobster too just Mm -hmm. like when the credits are over the audience is like pissed off we saw like there was a lobster with all old people people with like plastic bags it was raining that day and they just fiddled (laughs) with their fucking plastic bags for like an hour trying to get their umbrella in the plastic bag and then get their candy out of the plastic bag and eat it and then talk and be like what happened what did i miss when i was peeing And they're like, nothing, you didn't miss anything. This movie is terrible. It's like, then leave. There's a bar at the the movie theater. Just go sit out there for the next hour. For for, uh, when I saw The Witch, I think it had a lot to do with the age. I think kids were going like, the poster for the movie is like, it's 
You see know? a young, innocent girl, and you think it's going to be like kind of like. Well, you sexy know, it's called the witch. It's like, oh, it's going to be like a. She's a witch. Yeah. But, but no. Yeah, you're getting no. into something totally different, and uh, I just think they weren't expecting that. Yeah. I mean, what, I mean, I guess the response of like laughing at an old person's like naked body is like a very like 14 year old like response. Right. That's kind of what response I felt. Like, oh, they're talking all old and shit. Like, what is this fucking Shakespeare? Yeah, I heard it quite a few times. Like, what are they saying? I can't understand what they're talking about. <laughs> You're it's speaking like, English. Yeah. I wouldn't be above watching this movie with the subtitles on the third time I watch it. Like, yeah, I, no, I, that I, doesn't bother I, me. Yeah. I do that all the time for British movies yeah. and for movies where people are speaking but, dialects I don't understand. But like, I don't know I don't, if the dialogue is like. Like the most important Not thing even about the, in the top five most important things. I mean, I, I was going to bring this up later when it pops up on my list, but like the images in the film are really what stick with you. Yeah. Like, yeah. and that that's really what movies are like, kind of about it. I mean, the dialogue is nice, but not to get too cynical about like where audiences are headed, like mentally. But you have this thing where people know so much about movies before they come out now like for the marvel film for instance you see set pictures Mm -hmm. you hear plot devices uh things that are going to happen are telegraphed past the end credits of the film that precede it so you know what's coming i think with movies like the witch it upends so much expectation and leaves you with such an unease where you can't actually get a handle of what's happening that instead of actually engaging with that discomfort, people just laugh it off. Yeah. It makes you feel like superior to the film almost. You're not like submitting yeah. to its mystery. You're just sort of like, I'm above feeling but weird about this. But that's what horror movies well, then, should be about. Yeah. Totally. You go to feel uncomfortable and out, outside your comfort zone, but it's weird that people go now to horror movies. It's like a certain kind of comfort. Like you have your expectations what's going to happen and then when something like the witch comes along that's genuinely horrifying horrifying, (laughs) you're like dismiss it and it's like no that's why you're supposed to come to horror movies I mean maybe that's why the genre gets a bad rap in general is because horror movies are treated like an experience like an entertainment Uh and I don't want my roller coaster to fucking do something I've never had a roller coaster do that would be really upsetting I want it to go up and down and side to side maybe do a loop but if it did anything else I'd be really fucking pissed and terrified I mean so like if I'm going to this so that I can have some jump scares so that I can see some people killed so that I can like have that like adrenaline rush thrill and I walk into this I'm gonna be pissed because it's not that but it's being it's calling itself the same thing even though it is obviously not that right it's yeah. not a horror experience. Jump scares is definitely the main difference here. Like, this movie is about atmosphere. Yeah, it's about a horrifying, chilling atmosphere. That, n- that feeling of dread. It's not trying to surprise you. It just submerges you, which is like a whole different kind of like submission on the audience's part. Yeah. Well, yeah, my number four for the year was Kubo and the Two Strings. Uh, I've been on board with everything Leica's done so far. Uh, the stop-motion animation studio that made this also made Coraline and Paranorman, and those are both really great movies. Uh, they also made The Box Trolls, which was fine, but not particularly great. I think Kubo blows all three of those movies out of the water. As far as like a technical achievement goes, it is the most stunning use of stop-motion I've ever seen in my life. They do aid the animation with some CG imagery, to sort of smooth out the corners, but so much loving, intricate care went into crafting this film that I, I did tear up a few times based on like the themes of the film emotionally, but more often I was like on the verge of tears in this movie in the theater, just in awe of how beautiful it is. And I, I really think it's like one of the more like crowning like technical achievements of the year. What was your number three? Uh, number three, Heller Highwater. Yeah. Did 
Did you see that? This I year? saw it in the theater. Full disclosure, I went to the theater to see Pete's Dragon, and <laughs> the uh, basically the projector was like way off to like where over twenty five percent of the screen was cut off. And I went and complained during the credits. I guess complaints a harsh word. I was like notified them during the credits, mm-hmm. and they didn't fix it by the time the movie started. So I just switched theaters and went to see Hell or High Water instead because I'm not really into westerns, so it's not something I would have picked out for myself. But yeah. I liked it. So we talked about like genre films. Yeah, mm-hmm. and to me, more than any other movie this year, this. Was was like definitely a genre film but it was like a plus for its genre if we're talking about like kind of chase film western you know two brothers that like to drink and they're bank robbers and then you have the like old sheriff that's kind of you know been beaten up in life and you see those kind of tropes in like a lot of different movies like but it does it perfectly it's an efficient film it's so efficient it's like that script is so like tight and like on point there's not a minute wasted that's not either adding to like characters or furthering the action in some way and and also like it does have really good performances by chris pine and jeff bridges but more than anything else it's just like that script it's like damn he wrote a genre film in the most efficient, enjoyable It's an exciting way. film. And I, I think the reason it's resonating with people so much right now is because it does harken back to this, like, 30s frustration with the banks taking over people's lives and, like, ruining people, which, like, post the 2009-ish financial crisis, like, that's been a very important part of American culture. Yeah. And this is one of the best, like, summations of, like, basically getting one over on the banks because they've gotten one over on us for well, so long. And my favorite scene from the movie is where Jeff Bridges is talking to his Native American partner yeah, and his partner's telling him like yeah you white man you took this land from me (laughs) and now you know who's taking the land from you and then he points across the street at the bank yeah and that's like a central like theme to the whole movie because the brothers are like basically trying to get his family's land back so he's stealing from the banks that they have a loan from just the dialogue is sharp it's got a lot of action i will say ben foster in this movie as like the crazed like wild card gunman which i've seen him in other movies play something he plays similar. that he's role doing that a lot, lot now. but he's this good one, at though it. he reminds me of if guy fieri snapped <laughs> like he yeah. has like Guy Fieri's like sunglasses and stupid hair. He's just like crazed and like. But he's like charming in a really crazy, yeah. sort of like despicable way. But yeah, I, I get that yeah. comparison. It's kind, it kind of like the Lobster. It was like I, I appreciated it and I thought it did what it did very well. It just wasn't. It didn't hit my like personal check marks of like stuff I usually fall in love with. But I thought it was good. There's that final scene between Jeff Bridges and Chris Pine. That was one of my favorite scenes from the year. There's so much like undercurrent going on there that I don't know. Yeah, I really liked it yeah. as far as genre movies go. Yeah. That's my favorite. What's your number three, Cece? Uh, my number three was Arrival. Hell yeah. <laughs> because I have a background in anthropology and the Sapir Whorf hypothesis is a huge part of linguistics and it's the idea that languages shape how your brain works. And in this film, language shapes how the movie works. Your understanding of language shapes the character's development within the film, and it changes the plot, which in turn changes how you see earlier parts of the film, as we were talking about earlier. And I really love when a film can take actual theories that aren't really that interesting to to outsiders, to the layperson, and then use them in some kind of movie and some kind of genre to show you what that would look like practically. Uh, The most famous case of the Sapir Whorf hypothesis that I know from from my undergrad was uh, there's a tribe in the Amazon where because they live in the dense jungle of the Amazon, if they look up at the sky, they can only see leaves. Even around the river's edges, 
there's no real true clearings, so they never fully see the sky and they never fully see its color. So as a result, the color blue and the color green are the same color to them. You can show them navy blue and they will say that is green. And you show them green and they're like, that is green. You show them sky blue and they're like, that is green. You show them turquoise, they're like, that's green. So any shade of blue you show them, they insist it is green. And to them, that's 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 just how it works. Like you cannot separate those colors in their head and there's... that's just how they perceive the world. And there's other things about time. Uh, other languages where there is no past tense, which changes how they view death, it changes their coming of age ceremonies, it changes their taboos about food and sex, and mm -hmm. so how they perceive language changes who they are and how they live in the world. Yeah, and time is definitely a very big part of arrival as well. Exactly. So, and I really liked that they took this very dry academic concept. Like in the English language, the subject comes first, so we're very much interested in narrative. We don't really like these these tone poem movies as much. Mm -hmm. We don't like these pictures because we need to know what it means. We need to have a subject, an action, and a verb, yeah, the, and, and an object. Like this is not a linear story. It's circular. It's even paradoxical. Like things don't even like really check out the more you like observe them in the way we know stories. Yeah. Uh, it, that doesn't matter because we're just looking at it wrong. Yeah. Uh, and I, I really think as like a high concept sci-fi movie, I don't think this one was topped all year. No, no. Because I mean, the concepts were so impeccable and the way they wove them into an interesting storyline were, were, was just great. I mean, even if some of the more traditional parts of the story, like narrative, mm -hmm. you know, and, and as far as like telling a linear story wasn't as good, it was at the cost of of being able to take this really fascinating concept and, and applying it. it. It is funny how many like alien movies we've seen that don't try to describe like how would we, act, would we actually communicate mm -hmm. yeah. with these beings. Like there's been countless movies and that's never like yeah we always a, they always just speak English when they or arrive. like someone just conveniently invents like an interpreter machine that or just like, like figures it out for yeah. us. The only other one I can think of that tries to tackle that is like Close Encounters of the Third Kind. They're like communicating through like musical notes and, yeah but even that like would that really yeah because our music work? our music is based well western music's based on a mathematical progression yeah but which means you also, have to have that same like mathematical like understanding and but also to our ears too like their ears might interpret what if that sounds, sounds like thrash metal to them yeah. right too aggressive yeah i mean like <laughs> uh, eastern music like music from china uh, traditional like folk music sounds very grating to me because it uses a lot of minor notes or and, like and th they don't use chords the same way we yeah, use like chords. chromatic so me, notes like, like using just, every note of the musical and scale it signifies exactly. a different emotion that yeah we're not and it, yeah so i don't have that i don't have that language just like a visually graphic novels from the east and west have a different visual language yeah. and so you have to learn the visual language to know yeah. like, oh that character is angry or that's, oh that character is like laughing that's why this movie felt so smart and modern yeah, yeah. because you know? they did take the time to like figure out like how do we because we don't even know how to communicate with other people on our own planet well like we yeah. don't even understand like how their language affects how they think that's why it was so world, cool so. like seeing her character like tell them like basically like no this is how we need to communicate with them like just different strategies for how you would communicate with a other life form it's more about like, establishing a common ground than instead of like enforcing your way of doing things on someone else like it's like meet halfway on like a shared space like there's like a political bent to this film in the same way where like it, it's anti-imperialist where like instead of like fixing problems through war and aggression you like meet and understand which i, I really appreciate it as well yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. As far as the political stuff goes, it was funny how they presented us Americans. Like, we're the ones who are, like, kind and calm and understanding and are really intent on not bombing the shit fucking, out of them. But those fucking, like, what, the ja- was it was the, the Japanese? Chinese? No, oh, the Chinese, Chinese. sorry. No, yeah. they're very aggressive. You know, the South China Seas. But yeah. then we watched uh, Shin Godzilla, which is another sci-fi movie from this year, where like the Americans are like bullheaded. We're jingoistic, yeah. and like we're like, no, America that one, first. That one felt a lot more accurate. Yeah. So you know, there's just all these perspectives, and yeah. this film tackles how you would go about the more pragmatic uh, tasks of communicating with this this otherworldly. Yeah. What presence is Arrival on your top? No, it's in my top twenty, but not my top ten. Okay, so this is the last. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. there is one more thing I wanted to say about it was like this kind of the central I think point or idea in the movie is uh, is very similar to Nietzsche's idea of like the eternal recurrence or eternal return, where like if you could live your life over and over again and make the same choices in the same way, would you do it? Like basically that's the test of a good life. Yeah. If you'd be willing to live your life all over again, making the same choices, would you? And in this movie, that's basically what she decides is like, I know what heartbreak is going to happen in the future and kind of, but she decides to kind of do it anyway. And it's easier to accept that loss if you don't think of time as linear and those moments are always happening right you can always live in those moments like what has happened will have always happened and it's like a choice to like sort of accept the fact that there will be pain but you can like sort of return to these memories and live in them as if they're the moment and i I think that is kind of what nietzsche was getting at a hundred years ago and i think that's a central idea in this movie and that's like a very powerful message to me because i do feel like that's one of the keys to living a happy life is just accepting and being you know all the good with the bad that's kind of the decision she makes yeah even though i never got like emotional while watching the movie I, i i think its philosophy is like on point and like in a very like uh engaging way i was very impressed by it in that way so what was your number three brandon <laughs> uh a lot my number three i was about to say is less philosophical than arrival but i don't think that's true hail caesar by the cohen brothers it is a madcap screwball comedy set on the old studio system lot all these different old hollywood productions like westerns and uh synchronized swing pictures sort of leading man dramas uh in tuxedos are all recreated in this like stark beauty in a modern context where you see it on the big screen clear and in HD and it's all gorgeous. And there's a lot of like really funny stuff where like Channing Tatum is like tap dancing and George Clooney is this buffoon leading man who just is easily swayed by anybody who wants to distract him uh, with some Ooh, shiny <laughs> concept. Yeah. But underneath all that, there is like this really like philosophical edge to the film that only the Coen brothers could really slip into a movie this silly. The movie sort of tackles like the nature of nature at large and what we do and what our purpose is and like the personal satisfaction of a job well done and a job done thoroughly. Um, And I think this is a great antithesis to my other favorite film from them, Barton Fink. I don't think I could choose between these two where uh, in that film they had a sort of a personal self-crisis about feeding into this evil movie system when they were like fighting with these personal ideals of like communism and like why capitalism is an evil thing and i feel like there's like a self-acceptance to uh hail caesar where they're like we are feeding into this like magic making machine and yes it does it can be used for an evil purpose but it is a satisfying thing when it's a job well done and it does have good in in this world and i I think it's like the the cohen's reaching this like level of self-acceptance and like getting rid of this conflict they've had in the past 
And like I said earlier, it's just beautiful and funny. I was a little worried that I left the theater on like such a giant high that I had sort of overestimated how great the movie is. But we just rewatched it recently, and I think it really is just like a smart comedy, like one of the funnier, smarter films I've seen all year. Yeah, I'm really disappointed that more people hated it. Like, like they didn't love it like we did. Like, it didn't quite make my top ten just because there's so many movies I saw this year and they were all amazing. But it was fun. It was so beautiful seeing the western and the singing mermaid movie uh, with the synchronized swimming, the Busby Berkeley type show. Seeing those as they originally looked because no matter how beautiful you can make a film look nowadays, the film has degraded. And so when we go back and rewatch stuff on Turner Classic, unless they went back and did a painstaking Criterion Collection level like the restoration, shoes. you know, unless it's something like The Red Shoes that was filmed on true Technicolor, there's going to be a level of, of de degradation to the film, and you're gonna see that. And so a lot of people think that old films look so faded, and it's it's not true. When they were made, they did not look like that. We're just used to only seeing these damaged copies. So seeing them in HD as they originally were filmed was kind of part of the, the joy for me. The color in this film is gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. Again, yeah. like on par with the red shoes with that true Technicolor look. Yeah. And I think maybe part of the problem that people have is because of this love of realism that everything was shot as though it was under studio lights, even the things that weren't set at the studio. Yeah. So they would do these hmm. big studio scenes where it was obviously bright daylight with blue gels to make it look like nighttime. But then when they actually went out into the nighttime, they again made it look like it was being shot under bright studio lights with blue gels over them to make it look like it was night. Yeah, I feel like that's part of the um, homage is that off the studio lot is shot like an old noir film. Like, yeah. It, it's supposed to be part of the whole pastiche aspect of the movie. And I, I don't know what people expected from this because you have like, as far as like a crowd pleaser for general audiences go, you have this like star-studded cast doing this like giant ensemble comedy. And then there's a lot of philosophical stuff that would please like more like dedicated Coen Brothers fans who look for that kind of like smartly written screenplay. And I feel like it's getting shit on from both ends where like but people don't like the fact that both sides are being pleased in that in that compromise. I think that's been the Coen Brothers like kind of trajectory for a while. They te they tend to like go back and forth between these more lighthearted films and then the really like heavy no yeah. Country for Old Men or like... And they keep like going back and forth, but there's always a level of like sophistication and philosophy that goes behind it. But they tend to like alienate audiences because some people like the heavier stuff and some people like their lighter well, they're, they're, comedies. They're, and their comedies tend to do worse, I found. Yeah. They do, yeah. They're taken less seriously, It's heady. It's not... It's There are jokes where like... Scarlett Johansson refers to her mermaid tail as like a fish ass. Yeah, I gotta uh, go get my fish, my fish ass. Uh, Channing Tatum does this whole song and dance number about how because he's a sailor, he's gonna be on sea with a bunch of men for six months, and it turns into this like homosexual like celebration of like all these sailors enjoying each other's company. Um, so there are these like broad comedy moments, but the movie also has these like long conversations about the nature of religion between like several different like yeah, uh, like how can we depict God accurately in the film? And how can we show the face of Jesus in the film? And hmm. so you have, you know, a Protestant minister, an Irish Catholic priest, a Spanish Catholic padre, and, you know, a Jewish rabbi all, like, sitting around a table talking. And that's, oh, and an Eastern, uh, 
an Eastern uh, uh, Orthodox uh, priest, right? Uh, minister, uh, all, all like you know, kvetching over like who's got the right god, who has like claimed a god. And, and I think the movie, like I said, I think it's one of their crowning achievements, kind of like Barton Fink. Like I really like that it makes room for both. I mean, maybe I, that's what people are upset about, though, yeah. is that that the series people who go to see his films don't want to laugh and they don't ever want to not be in reality. Whereas Barton Fink, like it's got weird surreal moments, but it is very real. Right. Like the lighting's very real and the sets are very real and you know like but people anything like that, cherry any, pick with the Coen that, like, brothers yeah you know like oh i love that raising arizona like that was good and then they go to see this movie and it's not like really the same slapstick and they're yeah. like wait what is this like because yeah, there's more philosophy like mixed in but it's like mixed in in between scenes about like yeah. fish and i and i do think <laughs> and, like, for cowboys. you like i know you're not really into the really like overtly Philosophical, like that's how I view like No Country for Old Men. It's very overtly. Yeah, that's not my favorite. Philosophical. Like that's a, just like a matter of taste. Like I feel like you like that mixing the philosophy in with something more light. I like a little candy. philosophy in, in a film. Yeah, I like a little candy with my uh, with my medicine. You know, like I like to I like to, the philosophy to sweeten by a little bit of like spectacle. Well, and also, yeah. why, what's the point of putting philosophy in a film, anyways? Like. Yeah. make it like applicable or apply it like in in this case they talk a lot about like communism and like the tool of capitalism and how movies are are that tool but then we actually get to watch movies and we see like how it actually affects their day-to-day lives like the writers mm-hmm. don't get paid for these films that they write so they write in these like you know like smug like communist like manifestos like into these big budget films and like you know like thumb their nose at like the boss and, and then at the same time you see the movies become these like transcendent pieces of art that are like beyond that whole concern yeah and we also see who it's supporting and like we see like how like all these people's lives are improved by being actors because otherwise they'd just be a bunch of good for nothings yeah I feel like this is the Coen brothers accepting their sense of purpose in the world and not fighting what they do for a living yeah uh, you know sometimes you just want to see a cowboy make a lasso out of some spaghetti <laughs> you know while charming a Carmen Miranda type it's like one of the most adorable scenes in the the movie yeah I think that actor's name is Alton Eldritch yeah he's uh, gonna be our new Han Solo yeah and that guy's super charming he's so charming oh my god I need to go watch other movies that he's in I think he's in um he's in Stoker oh really is that a Park Chan book too yeah yeah Yeah, and yeah I think I think he's in that one as well that's awesome what was your number two James the witch the witch yeah back on it (laughs) definitely the best horror movie of this year maybe the past few years it's that good. No, it's, yeah. it's absolutely beautiful. And the whole thing looks like an oil painting. There's this one oil painting over at City Park. I don't know the name, but it's by a Dutch master. And it's oh, just I this love be- the Dutch Oh, it's, the Dutch and it's Yeah, because the lighting's so beautiful. And this mm-hmm. one is a still life of some fruit, but the background is almost black. And the lighting looks very ominous. And there's like a spider and a snake and like a skull and all of these like creepy yeah. elements kind of creeping into this beautiful scene, this lush oil painting and this reminds me like a lot of that like if this beautiful terrifying oil painting came to life yeah Yeah, it's like a beautiful terrain like you know kind of the wilderness of america but then it's also like fucking terrifying yeah too and i'm not surprised that we're all on the same page with this movie either i I can say this now because this episode's coming out after the fact but um we are about to post our top films of the year from like the normal website crew like the the, witches was an easy number one like nothing was even close yeah 
Ten Cloverfield Lane was actually the closest. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. I mean, we always have kind of an eccentric list, but those two like kind of ran away with it. I just think the the witch. If you're into horror movies at all, and you're a true horror fan, and you saw that, I mean, I don't see how it couldn't be in your your top five. It's a masterful and, command of atmosphere, and I feel like when horror is done right, and it's not just shocking. It is you, about atmosphere. It's about atmosphere, and that one does it so well. I agree. CC yes. number two. My number two. This one is a top Oscar contender. It Uh-oh. topped a lot of people's movie of the year list. We're going to probably hear a lot more about this film in the next year, and hopefully we'll see a lot more from this filmmaker. But my number two is Moonlight. I mean, it was so beautifully shot. It's set up as a triptych, and it tells the life of this young man who alternately goes by the name Little. What was his second name? Uh, his name's Chiron. Oh, yeah, Chiron, and then his adult name, where he calls himself Black. Uh, and it's it's the story about masculinity uh, and sexuality and repression in this very poverty-stricken Miami neighborhood. And, you know, it's not one of those homosexuals get killed at the end, homosexuals lead sad and miserable lives. Like, that's not what this is. And I feel like a lot of films mm-hmm. that tell the stories of people who are homosexual, like, really focus in on that in almost a leering sort of way. And it's not that sadness porn. It is something much more transcendent than that. And it's something that's shot a lot more interestingly than that. Kind of like the fits. It's taking these these art house styles and it's applying it to stories that it's usually not applied to, mm-hmm. which I really appreciate. That was my number one fear going in was that I was going to go see another weepy about how awful it is to be queer. No, and man. And it's not like that. It, That's, it's not like it's, that. last part of the triptych, you know, where he goes back to visit his, his childhood, friend. childhood friend. That is so well done. Like that scene in the diner Mm-hmm, there's the so stops. oh god there's so much little subtle i love the watching, acting is so beautiful in that scene i love kevin carefully cooking for chiron it's like one of the best like two minutes of like intimate filmmaking i've seen all year was just him preparing a meal for this man he hasn't seen in, uh, in years and you can tell there's so much between them without them having to say anything yeah. like that's such beautiful acting and also, like you were talking about with some of these shots, like one of my favorites was when those two are like wrestling when they're kids mm-hmm. and how the camera keeps like zooming in on like just their hands touching or like him touching his leg mm-hmm. and the getting in like really close and seeing their bodies just touching each other and the way he like touches his face and just stuff like that is like, man, that's... It's using the cinematography to tell the story just as much as the actor's. Yeah. In, and, like, a really interesting way. And that's why its nature as a triptych is so much better than if we just, like, watched him grow up in, like, a standard, like, almost, like, biopic format. Oh, it would have been kind of terrible. <laughs> yeah, I like that you get these snapshots uh, where you get these very specific short bursts of time. And what that does is it allows you to, like, sink into his mentality, like... You see what he dreams. Whenever someone tells him something that affects him, like either positive or negatively, he like goes out of sync with time where like people's mouths aren't matching up to the sounds that are coming out of yeah, them. The score like stops for a second and like picks up in a really weird way. Yeah. Kind of like that swimming feeling you get when somebody really like walks into a room and everything just kind of pauses, or mm-hmm. when somebody tells you that your parent has died. And the world ends at that moment. And they really did an amazing, remarkable job of visualizing that in a way that I hadn't seen before. Yeah, if you're, if you're calling out like new filmmakers to be excited about, like definitely Robert Eggers, Anna Rose Homer, who did um, The Fits, and this guy, Barry Jenkins. This is only his second movie, and it feels like somebody's been working at this craft for that, so long. I mean, that scene in the, the ocean where he's like kind of baptizing him, sort of? Yeah, or just he's like, teaching him to swim, but it does, I thought it was a baptism scene yeah. from the trailer. 
trailer. That's that is like on. something I would expect to see from like a master filmmaker that's mm-hmm. been around for decades. Yeah. Like that scene yeah. and was the so camera's moving. bobbing in the water, just like the boy is, just like little is. Yeah. And you see it go underwater for a second, and it comes up, and it goes under, and it's just it's so natural and so foreign looking at the same time. There's a patience and a confidence to the way this movie's made, where like you could push for these like dramatic beats and these like big moments and none of that matters nearly as much as what Chiron is feeling and thinking at any moment in the film. We always like to think of life as the the big moments when really it's like the subtle mm-hmm. smaller moments that really make a difference and you see that throughout the movie. Yeah. One of the like, scenes that really like punched me in the gut was the scene as a as as a little kid when little is trying to take a bath. And there isn't hot water in the house, and he has to heat up the water on the mm-hmm. stove. And then he uses like dish soap to bathe with. And I, I did that as a kid. Like I remember us not having hot water and, and having to yeah. heat it up on the stove to like have a, a kind of warm bath. It's still not warm. With, and, like, like hand, like dish soap. I, I actually use shampoo, but but, like, uh, but yeah, no, like that's like that scene. Like I knew that scene intimately. So in that scene, it was like a punch in the gut because I intimately knew that scene. Yeah, and, as and to know, capture that like was like so much bigger than any of the other like big moments. In it. Yeah, the fact that it took so much time to carefully show him making that bath too. Like, yeah, no, it took a long time. There's a long scene but it was totally because he had to heat up the water and yeah. dump it in, and then go back to the stove I, and heat up more water. I do think it's like universal as kind of the film is. It also feels very much like a black film to me, like the black mm-hmm. experience, black like, queer Miami. Like there's a lot of specificity to this. Yeah. Uh, but narrative. but just from what I know, like about gays in the black community, it's like hard. Maybe not a lot harder, but it's. A unique set of challenges being like a young black kid and being gay. There's several layers of privilege <laughs> torn away from They're that stripped perspective. Away. Yeah. yeah. And so that, like, it felt so real and genuine. Like, I felt like I was really living. I mean, we haven't even touched on the fact that he's like also growing in a household that's been riddled with addiction. Yeah. Uh, he's living with a single mom who can't take care of him, so where he has to make his own baths and stuff. Like, he's, he's not, he's basically raising himself. But then also it's like all these other problems. his kind of patriarch, the guy he looks up to is a drug dealer. And so, that, you know, that comes full circle at the end where he is kind of embodying all the stereotypes yeah. that he should be like running from. But, but none of these people feel like stereotypes would. either. Like they feel like real people. Yeah, yeah. He, it's not like a drug dealer with a heart of gold archetype. Like it, Juan is like a, a, a specific person. person. Yeah. yeah. And yet it's not completely autobiographical. This is not Barry Jenkins' life. It is It is written from it an autobiographical written, playwright. It's a semi-autobiographical play written by another playwright. Who's That's a, called um, In Moonlight, Black Boys Look Blue. But mm-hmm. I can't remember who the playwright is. But no, it's not, it's not completely autobiographical. I mean, I'm sure some elements pulled. I did read a very good essay recently, and I did not look up the name of it beforehand. It was written from the perspective of an African-American young man who who is homosexual, and his thought on it was, it's not that the community is homophobic, it's that toxic masculinity smothers everything to the point where most people would rather have a son who who deals drugs, who's shot someone, who's in jail, than a son who is an effeminate queer. If you're gonna be a queer, you better be a hard one. And and it's it's a very, like, rough concept. Like, they don't mind that you're gay. want you to steal yourself they, against the world they just want be you harsh. to be so fucking strong that you survive because mm-hmm. otherwise you will not survive if which is pretty it. much what he ends up yeah that's doing. that's that is the trajectory he shows and, is that... and we're talking about a character that's played by three different actors who don't really look anything alike except in the, like their eyes and their soul like they do a good job of portraying this one person but the jumps in physique to him uh being neglected as a child to being like a skinny teenager 
who's like basically had to like fend for himself with limited means and you can see him wasting away to that third phase where he is bulked up and he's like finally found a way to protect himself in this world that's been like so fucking harsh like that that physique jump from each segment i think is like so important to what the character's been through and fills in a lot of like narrative detail that we don't get because it is a triptych well and also um his name is kevin right the yeah, the second the second male lead. I thought they did a great job with casting as far as like his younger version mm-hmm. and then the older version of yeah. him. I was like, what did they get this guy like, got a, yeah, like time travel or something? So yeah, Chiron's a lot more drastic. Kevin's had like an easier way with life, so he doesn't like look so different. Yeah, he figured out how to like blend the whole time. Like he never. He never was at any risk of anyone ever accusing him of mm-hmm. anything, so he never had to change who he was, really, because yeah. he was much more secretive, even as a child, uh, whereas Chiron's character is an open person. He doesn't know that he needs to hide who he is. It was not a concept he ever really understood, because he didn't even understand what it was to be gay, and no one was really willing to tell him. I mean, it's a movie that has gotten so much critical praise, may very well take home the Best Picture winner for the Oscars, totally deserving of every accolade it gets like I, I know I didn't say quite as high as CC but I, I really do appreciate this film I mean it almost it almost seems like why bother putting it on your list I mean everyone <laughs> already loves it it's you know a, yeah. it's a top contender for Oscar it probably won't get it I don't know I'm more pessimistic uh, maybe I, La La Land will, will steal it from under oh his man white people can fly so you know why not <laughs> I like La La Land as well, but... I like La La Land too. But yeah, Moonlight deserves the accolades. <laughs> it, doesn't, it, it also doesn't need Best Picture, I right. don't know. Just like this doesn't need to be on my top list because I feel like we already understand that this was an amazing film. And, but it is that good. And a capital I important film. Yeah. Yep. Uh, but it is that and good. And still, still enjoyable. Like yeah. You can be both important and enjoyable, and I, I like it when films are both. Well, uh, my number two is a movie that hasn't gotten any accolades. Actually, <laughs> uh, largely forgotten since it was on the festival circuit last year. It's called Tale of Tales. It's almost like a triptych. It's it's three stories adapted from 17th century Italian fairy tales. The same fairy, the same author in the same book of fairy tales where we get our tales like Cinderella. <laughs> but these are the lesser knowns. Like you won't see this in Disney movies or anything like that. Also because of the content. <laughs> uh, we Cece and I already did an episode on Tale of Tales where we talked about it at length. But this is kind of like the fall where it's a gorgeous art piece that sort of sinks into the brutality and the unforgiving nature of fairy tales that sort of gets forgotten in like the disneyfication of the genre i absolutely love this movie i think it's the cinematography is gorgeous you have such great performances from people like selma hayek and john c Riley, who don't really get their due as being the great actors that they are uh, he also put in a great performance in the um, the lobster earlier this mm-hmm. year uh, this movie's funny, it's beautiful, it's absolutely fucking brutal. Toby Jones is in it, as well as another actor sort of flies under the radar. And there is a sort of overwhelming sense where the stories connect in that they punish uh, characters for self-absorption and for selfishness. But otherwise, the stories just sort of exist in their own space. Characters overlap, but each tale has its own way of sort of getting under your skin and making you feel uncomfortable either through like Cronenbergian body horror or like weird incest vibes or just like the unfamiliarity with what magic feels like in a modern text. And I, I really think this movie's affecting and unnerving in a way that I haven't seen the theater all year. 
and I, I've really just easily won over by beautiful cinematography. So a lot of my top choices are just movies that were the most beautiful things I saw all year. And this is an easy one to rank that high. I know CC Socks. We talked about it already. Honestly, I haven't even heard of it. Tale of Tales. It's Ser- really good. It was at Broad for a little while this spring. Like really? right after Broad. It had I like a five I day didn't run, even see yeah. a trailer for it or anything. It, I never saw a trailer for it. I just saw the poster. And the poster is I, Salma Hayek's in her beautiful kind of Spanish Moorish queen garb with this really beautiful complicated lace crown and this very beautiful black lace dress and she's sitting at a table with this high lacquered black chair behind her and the table Mm. is stark white and everything she's wearing is black and the table is black and then she has this huge monstrously sized raw heart she's eating it sitting on the table and she's eating it so she's just covered in blood she looks kind of like sick and like she has indigestion and looks a little miserable but also like extremely determined to continue eating like this like huge heart this is a movie that had very high buzz on the festival circuit in 2015 and people were like having very strong positive or negative reactions to it when it first premiered when it actually hit american theaters not a peep out of anyone no i mean maybe Mm. maybe the studio that released it had other things the distributor had other things on their their plate and so they just didn't have a money or a budget to to advertise this but the fall also didn't yeah make a splash in theaters despite the fact that it is to this day one of the most visually stunning films I have ever seen. I cannot promise that this movie will match your love for The Fall if that's a movie you hold dearly. But, it did not for me. But if you do hold The Fall close to your heart, there's no reason why you shouldn't give Tale of Tales a chance. There is one reason. If rape is a trigger for you, don't watch this film. Yeah. There is a very brutal rape in it. You never see the rape, but you know it happens, and it affects the character in a very, very visual way. It's not shot for titillation. It's not even shot exploitatively where you watch it happen, but you're right. It does have a very, like hefty toll on the plot of the film but that's very much in the traditional fairy tale tradition yeah, or or even in modern horror like films like 10 cloverfield lane even if you don't get killed by aliens you'll still get raped yeah. you have to always keep like an eye on yourself because the world is dangerous and you no one will ever protect you and they don't do it for a character's motivation like it's not so that okay well this character got raped and now the people that are involved with this character can now rise to the occasion and rescue them they now have a motivation for having action and and the rape gives them agency no the character had agency beforehand before the assault and the character had agency after the assault yeah and it didn't really affect any other characters yeah it's all about her her journey but visually i think it is very good not quite to the falls level i thought a couple of the effects were a little clunky Mm -hmm. they use a cgi for some of the background mats and i thought that that looked you know not as good but understandably they couldn't piggyback on you know the sets that (laughs) tarzan basically stole the fall (laughs) yeah no he stole scenes he would fly his actors out (laughs) to other locations where he's filming other things on someone else's penny yeah film his scenes and then send his actors back to where they came from. I should also note that The Fall is one of my favorite movies ever made and Tale of Tales isn't quite that good. <laughs> so I'm not even still, I still yeah. want to see it. Yeah, no, it's, it's really it's good. It's a nasty, brutal fairy tale. Fairy tales are not good. Yeah. yeah. Ch- changelings were written so that we had an excuse to leave children in the woods so that they would die. Be like, well, that one's a changeling. I have to kill it. Like, fairy tales aren't good. Fairies <laughs> right. are bad. I think we're winding down here to number our number one, one pick. So if you just want to count down your top five for us, James. The Lobster, The Innocents, Hell or High Water, The Witch, and the number one, Moonlight. 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 I can't, I kind of feel like you did, Cece, like, oh, this is so obvious. Like, this is everyone's top movie. But and I can't deny what it, what it is. It's yeah. really a beautiful movie. Like, I can't 
This feels more that. genuine to me now than like when people were praising Boyhood like this in 2014. Like, I don't think that movie was as special as all the accolades it's got. Where like with Moonlight, where everyone's saying it's so great, I'm like, yep, yep, it's it is so great. It, it just really is like a transcendent piece of art. Yeah, and on so many like you can go through every level of filmmaking that the acting, the cinematography, the plot, direction, like everything is top notch. And I can't think of another movie this year that didn't have like some fault like mm-hmm. everything in my list i could find like one or two critiques but with moonlight it really does feel like as close to a perfect of a movie as i've seen this year and for a director who's only made one other film like that's really impressive stuff there's no reason why you wouldn't be excited for whatever barry jenkins is going to do especially if he gets oscar nods mm-hmm. that's going to lead to more money more ambition this is somebody to keep your eye on absolutely i feel like a lot of the films that have been kind of on my top 10 at least have had these like painterly qualities where stills from them look like paintings. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I feel like Moonlight is one of those. There's a scene where Sharon's relationship with his mother is very difficult because obviously he he loves his mother, kind of, but he also feels that disappointment and resentment because she's not what he needs. Yeah. And she resents him because he's not what she wants. There's a scene where they have this rather like rough interaction where she says things to him that we don't hear but that he reveals later that she says some really awful things to him as a child. But she walks to the end of the hallway, and for some reason there's this bright pink neon light that mm-hmm. illuminates her. I know and she, exactly the scene you're talking about. Yeah, it's yeah. such an iconic shot. And it, it looks it looks alternately like a high art photograph. It looks like a religious icon, where she's this religious figure who's being lit, lit up with this divine light. It looks like something from a fashion spread because of like the neon like kind of tackiness to it. It just it's so But it, it's like he's seeing his mother is this divine thing, but then we know her like human yeah. frailties. Like, yeah, we know and this she's is all from addict. him. Yeah, because this whole movie is shot very much from his perspective, and he's having that moment where he sees her as like something really, truly beautiful. Yeah, I mean, this in the same way, I love the way the the ending was tackled. Where I think some people were disappointed at the end; they wanted a kind of conclusive, like, yes, they get together and he accepts that he's it's a so gay much more man. delicate than that. Yeah, yeah. that's not how. It would really like, go down, and even if it ended with them having like passionate sex, like, no, that's it, not good for the character. Like, he, right? He hasn't had someone since Juan left touch him in a physically accepting, tenderly, like right. uh, comforting way. Like so, just, just like physical contact where someone accepts and comforts him, and that's is such a big leap for that character. And that's why that that like final kind of shot where he's just sort of holding him means way more than any kind of them kissing or having sex or some sort of passion like that's true to the story and like and I feel like this movie really was like an answer to toxic masculinity it was really like saying like this is what it looks like and this is how we can combat it because even sex is a is a dominant thing like somebody's going to dominate within it maybe truly to be a man you want to be tender and kind yeah like saying like no like sex isn't like the most gay thing you can do it's not most not the most queer thing you can do sex is just sex but touching someone but i mean i think the last thing i'll I'll say about is kind of to touch on what you said is like it does feel important Mm -hmm. you know like some movies come along and like they're movies and they're entertainment but this really does feel like 
important with a capital I. Like, this is a movie I think 10, 20 years from now can still look back on. And, like, it was really important for the time period. So, thank God it's also entertaining and beautiful. And made right. money. And made money. And made money. <laughs> all that stuff. So, a success. Yeah, and a, and a year where, front. like, ambitious films have not been making money. It's it's good that Arrival made $100 million. I don't think Moonlight was quite that resounding of a success, but it, it made it its made money, money back. And it might even have a second run when the Oscar picks come out. A lot of I'm movies. pretty sure it will. Yeah. Like, Britannia's definitely going to rerun it. It's like still has playing abroad. It's still playing Yeah, well, abroad? it came back to Broad. It's okay, doing its back. second run right now. It might nice. do a third one later next Jeez, this year. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Good. It, it totally deserves all that stuff. Uh, all right, CC, number what's your one. favorite movies of the year? Okay, so my top five. The Love Witch, followed by The Witch at number four. Arrival, Moonlight, and The Fits. The Fits. The Fits. So good. I loved it so much. After we watched Lemonade, we went back and watched Daughters of the Dust, mm-hmm. which was Julie Dash's film. Um, it was notable because even though it was made in the 1990s, it was the first film with an African-American dr- female director to get a studio release, a wide studio release. I.e. Mm. not just shown in not, art houses. Not a studio release, an indie theatrical release. Oh, it didn't it's get a... the it, only movie by a female African-American director to be released in theaters. Period. Period. Oh, I thought... In 1991. Oof. Absolutely yeah, I was slightly insane. more optimistic. Damn. Yeah. So we rewatched that film after watching Lemonade because she used a lot of the imagery, uh, like the scene where you see women in white dresses standing along the branches of a live oak tree that was pulled directly from Daughters of the Dust and a lot of like the 1800s dress with the beautiful like Gibson girl type hairstyles and lemonade that was pulled from Daughters of the Dust antebellum like Caribbean kind of like yeah, Louisiana it, uh, Daughters of the Dust is set uh, on the Gullah Islands uh, off the coast of the Carolinas um, and there's a group of you know uh, former slaves and the children of these former slaves and they're trying to make the decision now that emancipation is the law of the land it has been for the past 20 years do they want to reintegrate into society do they want to accept modern technology and modern conveniences for becoming black because essentially when you live in a place where everyone is the same race as you you don't have a race like that Mm -hmm. no longer becomes an issue so if they come back to the mainland they will again be black which they weren't here on this island so like it is this beautiful story of like modernity versus tradition and you know race in america and race right after the civil war but like the fits all of those things aren't really that important it doesn't give us any of those answers it is shot much more like an art piece it's a mood it's a mood it's a color palette it's it's a costume it's not necessarily this easy linear story it's set pieces it's these kind of scenes where we go into, you know, some characters playing on a beach, some characters having a picnic, and those are the important exchanges. And and kind of like that, the fits kind of plays off of that. There is narrative, and that stuff's important, but also just the imagery itself is really, really the remarkable thing about this. The biggest mm-hmm. cathartic release you get in the fits is just watching uh, Royalty Hightower's protagonist practicing her boxing routine. It sort of instinctually starts morphing into the things she's learned on the dance team. None of this is shown in any close-ups. Like, you don't see her face changing as she's doing this. You don't see what it's doing to the character and like, a 
intimate level. You just sort of like see all these different elements of her life culminate in her becoming her own person. Mm-hmm. And it's done so delicately and from such a distance that it's like such an amazing moment in the film. And like you're saying, like Daughters of the Dust, like there's no fine point put on what it means or what it is. Like it's just a small moment of this young child just being by themselves and like figuring themselves out and like feeling who they are. And it's really crazy that like a first time filmmaker could pull off those kind of moments. And yeah, Honor Rose Homer, I really just want to know what she's going to do next. I'm so like stoked. I'm so excited. Yeah. Well, yeah. Brandon. What was your what, your top number five one and to number one? Take so us out. my top five were The Witch, Kubo and the Two Strings, Hail Caesar, Tale of Tales, and my number one of the year, The Neon Demon, from Nicholas Winding Refn. Not surprised it didn't show up on either of those lists. It is a very divisive film. Some people can't finish it. Some people hate it. Uh, people fall asleep watching it. Uh, it is a slow-moving art piece in true Refn fashion. Just a indulgence and synths and neon lights and slow-moving forms of violence. Kind of an interesting marriage to me between what he did in Drive, which is probably his most like commercial film so far, and what he did in Only God Forgives, which was his like much-hated follow-up to that movie. This is a great balance of those two things for me, where I am just so in love with what this movie does. It finds a feminine aspect of Refn's like meditations on violence and self-obsession that hasn't been met before. He worked with two female screenwriters. He uh, had a female cinematographer, which was some of the most beautiful imagery I've seen all year. In a uh, year of beautiful imagery. Yeah, beautiful the, imagery. the Neon Demon. And I know we were talking earlier about sexual violence. This is about a young girl going to LA to become a fashion model. And the whole movie is about people like circling her like wolves, ready to devour her. There's obviously a lot of sexually charged violence surrounding this girl. It is a very harsh aspect of the film. I don't think it's ever shot for titillation. It's always supposed no. to be disgusting. Yeah, it's, and, it's it's disgusting, but it's also real. Like, yeah. 14-year-olds and 16-year-olds and 13-year-olds don't move to LA and have everything work out perfectly. Right. It's not a it's not a it's not a Disney fairy tale. It's an actual fairy tale. And if you want to talk about female collaboration, Elle Fanning is the main star of the film. Apparently on set with Refn, she helped the story develop and like had her own input in the movie, and now she's inspired as an artist to want to be a filmmaker, which I think is really cool uh, she does some really great stuff in this movie on top of all that it does this thing that i love so much that art films do the one that's coming to me uh first off is um beyond the black rainbow where you have this slow moving art piece where it's all abstracted beautiful fashion design imagery and then the last 15 minutes becomes a more generic horror picture where everything crashes and these new concepts that have been sort of at the fringes of the film sort of rush in and become something more familiar and I, I think the movie is a lot funnier and more beautiful than anything I've seen all year um, if I had to sort of unify my top five in any way I think these are like the crowning visual achievements especially stuff like Kubo and Tale of Tales and The Witch and Neon Demon like these are like cinema in its most pure form is just the moving image and these are the films that like did the artistry for me um, how did y'all feel about The Neon Demon? I really like it um, it was in my top 20 it didn't quite make my top 10 just because I wanted some funny films like the nice guys on mine, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a lot heavier than that. Yeah, no, I think the Neon Demon's great. It's it again visually, it is nearly unparalleled. I don't quite agree that it's it's perfect. No, it's harsh film and it's a scary film. Don't move to L.A. if you're 14. I mean, don't move to L.A. if you're 27. Uh, just be careful if you move to L.A. Not that these things can't happen anywhere, but no, 
uh, just the way that girls are preyed upon, not just for their looks, but just for the fact that they're female. Yeah. I think that's accurately portrayed. James, you didn't finish it, huh? I didn't finish it. And I think what it has a lot to do with was like how much I disliked Only God Forgives. Mm -hmm. I really despised that movie. I didn't like it either. And the first like 15 minutes of this, I kind of was getting similar vibes and I was sort of just like dismissive of it, which I think hearing you talk about it now maybe wrongfully so but uh i didn't like only god forgives either like i don't think that i never saw it but it is it is um a similar vibe yeah and that but but to be perfectly honest i don't think i gave it enough time i don't think you can give any movie 15 minutes and Mm -hmm. turn it off and switch to something else and act like you have some say in what that movie was about so i really don't even feel qualified to say well it's a movie that i i wouldn't throw it on if i was just in the mood for a horror film or something like that's kind of what i was yeah i was like late at night i was like oh i'm gonna put on that neon demon movie and i was like oh it requires patience and attention for sure not that there aren't funny bits and like gross like gore bits like that does come into play but it's not an immediately satisfying experience in that no, way no no i mean it is good and it is satisfying the the allegory the like fairy tale aspect of it like they handle really well and like it happens like the things that like you think might happen happen they just don't quite happen in the way you think they are mm-hmm. and the people that you think that are the villains of this you know for the most part are but then there's even more people to be afraid of like you have your your obvious cast of villains but then you have another slightly less yeah. obvious cast of villains kind of piled yeah. on um, and then you have like the score from cliff martinez that synth score gorgeous so good. score like, just the art moments of the film with the synth score and these almost like kaleidoscopic uh shots hmm. with mirrors and glitter and fake blood and fashion are just so nice. beautiful and i love how uh, Elle Fanning's narcissism makes her out to be a monster even though there are these people circling her ready to yeah, devour Yeah, no, we, we know something bad's gonna happen to this girl. We should, like, worry for her but she's such a little shit. She knows exactly what she's doing. Uh, she knows that she has this special quality where all eyes are on her at any moment and that narcissism is a form of violence that the movie doesn't forgive even though we're trained by horror films to see her as a victim she's a lot more complex than that and there's yeah, so much more she knows what she's characters. doing and she knows that she's walking a very fine line yeah. she knows that what she's doing could bring violence to her and she's still doing it because she knows that like if she gets away with it she'll get everything yeah and if you're if you're used to like giallo pictures like Blood and Black Lace or Suspiria, like if you like that type of cinema and you have a little patience for like a slow vibe, there's no reason why you wouldn't enjoy yeah. this film. I mean, the female has slightly more agency in it, so yeah, it's better know, really. because because um, she is manipulating the situation. I'm going to rewatch it tonight. Yeah, it's really good. Okay, so that's our uh, top films of the year. I would say if any of us had a film in common, The Witch is probably our movie of the year. It's hard to put a button on a year and say that it's done. Like, we'll recap oh, there's still in the summer. Scene. Yeah. yeah, no, I still have like four or five yeah, more movies. Yeah, I didn't see like the fits see. and yeah. the handmaiden. We'll, we'll reconvene in the summer and sort of like catch up on things from 2016 that we didn't quite catch in time. But, yeah. um, I mean, pretty much the takeaway is that The Witch is the movie of the year, as far as I can tell. That's sort of the consensus. Even if some of us would have rated other things higher, I think that's the movie that we could all get on Everyone the same page with. On, yeah. yeah. And uh, this podcast will be um, changing formats again. James and Cece are going to start alternating between um, co-hosting duties. New year, new era of the podcast. I'm, I'm glad that we got a year out of consistent recordings under our belt. It's, it feels good. Woo! Uh, <laughs> 
And uh, we hope to hear back from you all soon. Bye. 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 Bye.